0: My name is Paul Waller and I'm a horror movie addict. During 2020, the workload for my band and my music management job, it slowed right down. And at the same time, I discovered the movie social networking platform Letterboxd. So I decided to fill in the gaps of my horror film knowledge. And within one week, I was averaging three a day. This podcast is a result of that horror compulsion. This podcast is called A Year in Horror.
1: Do you know
2: what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear.
3: Every you do.
0: A big black and white welcome. Yes, welcome back to all you retro horror hard nuts out there. The 1920s and the 1930s, they were two decades where horror found its feet. And also where the genre actually found its name. All the groundwork was laid and a massive catalogue of films from this era still remain for us to view. Personally for this episode, I watched 62 movies in total. And of course... As you already are aware, I did not finish editing this lot in time to have the show ready for October the 1st because I went away to Wales on holiday. A right old selfish bugger, me. A right old selfish bugger. But everything is back to normal from this month though. Every month you're going to get one of these heavy hitter episodes. And another thing that I think I have to mention here is that this episode was the one that I was dreading. I had no base with these movies, except for maybe The Wizard of Oz. I had no idea what even the Hays Code was, let alone that Frankenstein had a bride, or that Boris Karloff was going to be the star for me during this time period. I had no idea. So, for those new to the show, here is going to be just a quick guide to what A Year in Horror is actually about. This is a podcast where I choose a year at random every month and I run down my personal favourite films of that year. It's a simple concept and I'm rather fortunate that everyone always agrees with my rankings all of the time. And as you will notice, very much so this month, I rarely go with the most critically renowned movies. I just go with my heart, I just go with my taste. Saying this, the higher reaches of the also-rans... And definitely my top 10, they are incredible films that I love and I will revisit them again and again and again. So it all turned out alright. Lucky me. And this month I'm going to be joined by a stack of guests, just like every other episode. And they help me wade my way through the most interesting films of the bunch. So today we've got some podcast regulars. We've got photographer and filmmaker Benjamin Bowles. We have the return of journalist and podcaster Perrin Hayish the return of the musician Paul Chanter, and the astronomer Mark Canali. Yeah, you didn't know that, did you? He's an astronomer. As for special guests this time, we are joined by one of my very oldest friends. He is also an incredible musician. He is called James Davies. And last, but so far from least that it hurts my face, we have the author, the lecturer, Alison Pierce. This month's episode, it's going to be proper old-fashioned. So, my definition of horror is sometimes pretty floppy for those with a rigidly definitive idea of what actually makes a horror a horror. And sometimes these floppy choices, they make their way to the very high reaches of the chart. So prepare yourself to get proper triggered, especially this month, because some of my lower picks are ridiculously well regarded. And when you make it to the very end of the episode, I'm going to be picking out of a bag at random the very next year that I'll be tackling for next month's edition of the podcast. Easy. That's how this works. These numbers begin with the 1940s, the 1950s, and then they begin one year at a time from 1960 all the way to 2020. Deep breath here. These are the ones we've already hit. 1971, 1973, 1984, 1966, 2001, 2010, 2011 and 2018. And now here we are at the 1920s and the 1930s. So all those years that I've just mentioned, they will be jettisoned from the bag and then I'll pick out a new one for the next month. That makes complete sense. I'm getting a dab hand at this. Uh, I also accidentally though, I accidentally watched the fucking fantastic film called The Penalty. I also watched The Man Who Laughs and Behind the Mask. None of which are in any way horror or science fiction for that matter. So I couldn't include them, just wasting my bloody time. And you might be thinking, hold up a minute Paul, hold up. These 62 films... That's not enough to judge a whole two decades in horror. Well, I can't argue with you there. I did have 75 films lined up, which I thought would make a nice little snapshot of those two eras. And I watched all the bigger titles, and then I started to delve into some of the lesser known ones. But I have to admit, I did find it pretty hard going. And I would like to get back to this era of film at some point. I'm certain I will, but I just don't think I'm ready yet. It was a lot. So here are some rules that I followed to create the show. I have to have a cut-off line somewhere, so I use the scores on Letterboxd as a rough guide. So a movie needs to be looking at getting a 3 out of 5 score before I'm going to watch it. A good example here is the popular Boris Karloff vehicle, The Ghoul. Now that scores a close but no cigar 2.8 currently on Letterboxd, but because there isn't an angle for me to latch onto it with, for instance, I'd already seen Karloff in 15 other movies, I'm just going to simply let that one pass me by even when that film may have had a fan base. But sometimes there are exceptions to this rule and 1935 saw the release of Charles Brabin's The Mask of Fu Manchu. Now that only scored a close, but not quite 2.9 on Letterboxd. But it stars Bela Lugosi and I wanted to check out his range. I wanted to see what he could do. So I gave it a watch. I did live to regret that. And here is the most important thing. I'm just simply a fan here, I'm an enthusiast. I am not a horror expert, although I'm starting to get to know my shit now, a little bit. So if I do miss something out that you love and you want to let me know, feel free to do so. And also, if you do pick up a great tip from me, then please also let me know that. And as a side note, just to return to the haze Code, for those that don't know what it was, it was, and I quote to you, and it is really important for these films, I'm going to quote Wiki in fact a set of industry guidelines for the self-censorship of content that was applied to most United States motion pictures released by the major studios from 1934. So we are entering here the beginning of censorship. Now, I will repeat these contacts at the end, but please feel free to contact this Silly Billy podcast. You can follow me at WallerNotWeller, that is WallerNotWeller on Letterboxed. And Instagram, or you can hit me up on at notwellapod on Twitter, or you can email us at a year in horror at gmail.com. And if you enjoy it, please leave a five star review on Apple Podcasts. You know why. OK, are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to an awful segment that I call the 10 worst movies from the 1920s and the 1930s. There were definitely worse movies than these that came out in the 20s and the 30s, but these are the worst 10 that I sat through for this episode, which includes a mind-numbing 1 out of 10, 2 2 out of 10s, and 7 3 out of 10s. It was the most challenging a year in horror for me yet, and I do understand that a large part of the audience are going to absolutely love this list of the 10 worst films. And by love it, I mean actually like the films, and not think that I've done a really good job compiling it. But my feelings about them, they're still valid. I was proper not into them. But unlike before, it may well be worth your while just to jot this lot down, or just take a look on my letterbox page to see the list in full, because... All of these films that I talk about this week, they are considered by many to be the creme de la creme. So we shall begin at number 10. It is Dracula's Daughter. Dracula,
1: he's come back. Sandra, look at me.
2: What do you see in my eyes? Death. Do you like jewels, Lily? This is very old and very beautiful. Please don't come any closer. <coughs> <coughs> mm. no.
0: Now this wasn't awful, it just wasn't engaging enough and I blame the lack of scares and jump moments, which is a real shame. Uh, It showcases a great performance in the lead by Gloria Holden but it suffers from lacklustre direction from Lambert Hillier and of all the films in my worst 10, this is the one film that I really wanted to love. I really wanted to love this the most. At the ninth position for the worst film of the 20s and the 30s, please welcome The Ghost Goes West. In this, a ghost travels with the castle that it haunts as it's shipped brick by brick across the Atlantic Ocean. I'm going to file this one under a 30s comedy, a fantasy, horror is last. But however you want to classify this film, it still fails to entice me. There are not enough scares. You've got a ghost as the main villain. How can you go wrong? Surely that is essential. Still, my number 8 pick is is the 1924 piano-led horror, The Hands of Orlac. And you know what? This started off pretty strong, but with over 90 minutes running time and a limited set of locations to dwell in, my interest just waned pretty quickly. And that's a real common theme here in The Worst Ten. There is a grand idea to spark this film, but then it just isn't capitalised on at all. In at number seven, with a bullet, is Mark of the Vampire.
2: No one leaves, move
1: only at your peril. We will not stop until we have discovered the vampires who seek the life of this beautiful girl
0: and her lover.
2: Watch out, they may be hovering over you, or you,
1: or you.
0: Directed by Todd Browning after Dracula and Freaks, the tone of this one is all over the place. It's probably due to the Haze Code cutting this thing down at the balls. But the overacting is comical and I'm not sure if it's meant to be funny or not. Early scenes do contain nods and winks but generally this is just played for scares, I, I think. The ending though, this is where Lugosi... Oh yeah, it's Bella Lugosi. It's where he breaks character... Uh, And it does my head in. It's clever, maybe for the time. It's a new thing. But again, the tone is wrong for it. It's a complete what the fuck moment. At number six, Doctor X. Now, I've just listened to a podcast with Rob Zombie speaking, and he loves this one. But for me, it was, well, slow. It was laborious. The whodunit nature of this story, it should have been enough to see me through the 76 minutes running time of this film. But alas the story was not engaging enough but at this stage I really was thinking this is a bit more me than the actual film this is my issue it is not an issue with the film surely but then it just goes on at number five the ninth guest and spoiler alert the ninth guest is death or is it yep yeah it's death Crashing in at number four is the inconceivably incompetent The Testament of Dr. Mabuse. This was outrageously boring for me. Too much police doing bugger all and the horror is several layers too low in the movie. Some double exposure work here is great. That's a positive I guess but it is nothing that hasn't already been done a decade before it. And this one, again, just rates really high with that letterboxed audience scoring. At number three, Waxworks. Now, this is sort of like an anthology, but it's it's not really. Uh, I was bored, though. I was bored. It felt like a mission to get through this one, and I only stuck with it because it scores, again, really highly on letterboxed. This one recently had a lovely Blu-ray package put together. So let me know if you actually have got that and you enjoyed it. What do you get out of it? It's not the worst though. Worse than Waxworks is my number two pick and that is a 1920 adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So I already dislike this story and that's bad from the off. And also I have to admit here I watched it on a terrible YouTube upload so it's not really fair to be doing this to it but where else is this going to go? It was rubbish. So if you think I am wrong about all this lot Please give this next one a go. It is really underseen. And I'm sure I saw it on YouTube. I'm sure that's where I saw it. So yeah, give it a go if you think I've been really, really out of order on these films that I've been mentioning in this top 10. And tell me what the hell is so great about this film. My number one terrible pick for the worst movie from the whole of the 1920s and the whole of the 1930s in horror is The Bells. It is a silent movie and it is about a killer. And that killer has to deal with the ghost of one of their victims. I couldn't connect with one character. 45 minutes in, I just gave up and the ghost hadn't even arrived on the screen yet. It was the only film from this whole bunch that I watched for the whole of these decades that I couldn't complete. It was wince inducing. And there you have it. That is the 10 worst films that I saw from the 1920s and the 1930s. And I'm taking from this some positives. It is a plus that, unlike last month, I don't have to sit through loads of graphic rape scenes uh, and then more graphic rape scenes, just like I did with that 1973 episode. But I'll be honest, right now, I'd love to be watching films from the 70s way more than this lot. Way more. <laughs> This is the point in this month's podcast where I really do want this known. This is simply my personal opinion. 1920s and 1930s horror for the most part is really not for me. And sitting through so many unrewarding films in a row, it made me like them even less and rate them all that little bit harsher. Those top 10 worst films that I just ran through, as I mentioned most of them are loved by so many that really dig this era and I really hated them. This first batch of Also runs it's much the same, but at least we're going to eventually hit some 4 out of 10s here and that is something, right? That's a positive. So first up, here we go. Buckle in. <laughs> first up, we've got 1932's Vampire, spelt V-A-M-P-Y-R-E. This one is hugely popular and there is something about this that is going to come up a lot there is a fantastic visual work with smoke and shadows in some of these early scenes and if you will excuse the pun as a whole it feels rather lifeless when it's not there although it is cool to see some really early use of vampire lore I like that but we do take it for granted today And I get it, it's really old, this was one of the first times that we get all this stuff but it's just been done since so much better. The Old Dark House is next, and I gave this 3 out of 10. People absolutely love this film as well. I really like Boris Karloff, don't get me wrong, this guy's a legend. Uh, This one again is considered a second tier classic, and I was expecting it to be one of my favourites going in. The synopsis was really good, but I just got bored from beginning to end. You've seen One Haunted House, you've seen them all, apart from this one's in black and white. Another Universal film is next, and this one is called The Mummy. This is far more popular than the old Dark House, of course it is. It's one of those top-tier classics, but it was equally as unengaging for me. Even with a rather good set-up and having Boris Karloff being excellent again in this, The Mummy sent me to sleepy. Following this, if you haven't already turned off the podcast, following this, we've got The Lodger. A Story of London Fog. Now this one contains a visual flair that is really rather impressive. I love that initial entrance of the lodger through the door for instance. And yes, did I mention that this is an early Hitchcock movie? For me, it plays as a little idea pad of setups that it would master as the years progressed. But for Hitchcock, much, much better stuff was yet to come. So, following this, werewolf of London.
1: You must seize the only specimen of the Marifesa plant in England. That flower is the only known antidote for werewolfery. A very interesting folk tale, but of no value to the police. I warn you, sir, unless you secure this plant, there'll be an epidemic. That will turn London into a shambles.
0: Now I think this one was either the very first werewolf movie or it was the second. I can't remember exactly, but I would say for use with this podcast, let's just say it was the first. Why not? Yet another in-depth piece of research there from a year in horror. First of all though, I would like to say the two old women having a row in this. Uh, and one of them settles the argument by punching the other one in the face. I love that. Those differences were resolved with perfect comic timing. Unfortunately, though, the film's setup is way better than the payoff. It really seems rushed and a tad convenient by the end. So, yeah, another one that's not for me. Talking the film's not for me. Next up is Murders in the Rue Morgue, a massively popular title. And this contains, again, some great technical and innovative shots. But the scares, they are lukewarm at best. Next up though, The Last Warning. This contains, once again, some somewhat smashing camera work, loads of forward thinking ideas. Again, what a trend that is happening here and it doesn't happen as the years progress as well. The artistry does not seem as striking when I'm watching films from the 40s and the 50s, that's for sure. This one is set in the world of theatre, and I was engaged for the opening setup, but it was a struggle to keep focused on a haunting mystery like this over a full 90 minutes running time. I much preferred the next ones, Vengali, and that featured a Rasputin type character that transfixes women through the explicit use of hypnosis. I'm pretty sure I saw that on YouTube as well for free, and it is still there. What is next? Let me have a little look. Ah, The Devil Doll.
1: In a sensational statement by the Prefect of Police today, it was admitted that Paul LeVon, former bank president, convicted of looting his own bank and killing a watchman, escaped from prison four months ago. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you a thousand times, monsieur. You'll never know how happy it makes me to leave one of my dolls in your beautiful home.
0: And whilst this was marketed as a horror, this is simply, to me, a revenge story which contains this bizarre subplot which focuses on a magic formula that can shrink people and make them obey you uh, Calling this a horror though is very generous but calling my 80 minutes watching this nonsense horrific, I think that's fair. Following this we've got The Bat Whispers and I watched this one on YouTube as well. Uh, Yet again impeccably filmed but this time we've got a comedy horror so there's a comedy slant creeping in. And it's really odd watching it. There seems to be dramatic pauses and a few holds on some silly pulled faces for laughter. But the laughter never comes, of course. There's no canned laughter here. Uh, it was weird to watch at first. But I got used to the format and I lasted halfway through it before I got really bored and began wondering if the plant next to me was dying or not. It's a pretty expensive plant. I am concerned. I am concerned. Following this, Der Gollum. D-E-R G-O-L-E-M, of course. That's how you spell it. Uh, And that was next. And I considered this one a real biggie. It didn't really connect with me again. But a few others like this from this era did connect with me. And I promise we will get to them soon, I promise. There is some fantastic imagery, a little bit of technical flair. But the sheer volume of similarly themed films that have followed over the past century, they render this one... Just simply a curio for me. If nothing else has made you turn it off, but you're very close, then this one is going to make you delete this podcast. Next up in my also-rans is The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And this one does hold the title for many, many horror fans as the first true horror film. It did nothing for me, except it looks incredibly beautiful considering its age. I just feel like i missed something when watching this one i was so excited not a lot of this made sense to me i just couldn't give two shits about our two protagonists francis and alan i didn't care i know that it's expressionist cinema and that it isn't meant to be linear and this sort of thing does not have to be plot driven but i just disliked it so much on first viewing that I don't want to come back, I don't want to return. And if you look at the scores on Letterboxd here, there are so many fours and fives, it's crazy. There are 13,000 people giving this full marks. To put that in perspective, only 943 people agreed with my two star rating. Make that what you will. If you were still with us, I really appreciate that. You're on board, you're gonna love my top 10. I love my top 10 and also many of the second batch of also they are really good too. So hold in there, hold in there. Next up is The Raven. Now, if I'm going to be honest, this did fare a little better for me. This one is an adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's tale of bonkers sorcery and Camper's Christmas performances from Boris Karloff and Vincent Price make this well worth watching. It is brilliant and it is rubbish at the same time. But we're heading back over to Expressionist Cinema now. We're heading over to Germany. We've got Faust. Now much like a lot of these early German works, I was left a little bit, what the fuck is going on? That's what was going through my head. But I didn't really think that until it finished, which is never really a good sign, unless it's someone like Lynch I'm watching and then I'm really pulled in and I want to watch it again. I want to figure it out. Didn't happen here. Again, I just dislike it so much that I don't want to give it another go. And maybe I would have completely got it on the second try. I just don't want to do it. I did try. In this one, God and the devil, they fight for control of the earth. Sounds crazy. Sounds wild. Sounds explosive. Just read the back of the box. It sounds mental. But it isn't. It left a bad taste in my mouth after I spent so much money on the Blu-ray. Not happy with it. Thank goodness, though, for the black cat. This is the 1934 adaptation of the Black Cat, and it stars Bella Lugosi and, of course, Boris Karloff. Of course, it does everything starred Boris Karloff at this time. Uh, great cinematography in this one. The film is okay, which you know, I'm so happy to finally get to the stage where films are being okay. Things are looking up. I'm really liking the introduction of a cult-like thing starting to take place in horror here. It's tasty. So in this rundown now we have begun to hit the films that I've started to enjoy. We've got to the halfway point and there are a couple of films now that I think need addressing. So let me introduce you to a friend of mine that I have known for way over half of my life now. We used to be in a band together and we travelled all over the UK, all over Europe and you know what? I hadn't spoken to him for a couple of years so what better way for us to hook up than to speak about cinema? His name is James Davies. Here's myself and Jim. We are chatting about the number 24 pick of mine, which is The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and the number 23 pick of mine, which is White Zombie. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Long-time friend, first time on the podcast. How are you doing?
4: Um, I'm doing very well. It's fun to be here. It's good to see your face. It's a great face. It's a face for radio. <laughs> so <Sorry. laughs> Exactly. I didn't mean that. It's not true. <laughs> but, um, you, you set them up, I knock them down, eh? Yeah, yeah, good to be here.
0: Bloody, bloody is good to see you, mate. Well, we are going way back, Jim. We are going yes. back to the 1930s uh, for this little chat with yourself. What's your experience with movies from this era? Uh, is it something you regularly dip into or is this like a
4: first time? Well funnily enough over over the course of lockdown, I had a lot of time to watch movies and it had been a sort of pleasure that had been denied me just by sort of work schedules and stuff. So I did watch some old old movies over over the course of lockdown. But when I was thinking about this subject recently, I realized that I probably hadn't seen as many films from that era as as, as I could. But the quality of some of those old movies is really, really abundantly clear after watching some of the worst trends in contemporary movies. I'm sort of sick of them, if I'm honest. I don't really like superhero movies. um, And they do not hold my attention span. But then I did realize, yeah, there's some some old movies that I do really like. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is a good one. I remember the film Freaks as well, which is like probably a a film that might get mentioned on this. Yeah. It's a, it's a great, it's a real, it's a real experience. Um, that movie, I'm sure you've, have you talked about it on this podcast before?
0: Not with anyone in particular, but it is in the charts. Um, that that I do. Yeah. It's one of my favorites of that. I suppose that counts
4: as a horror movie. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a few, there's a few, I I mean, like things, things like King Kong, you know, you see that sort of stuff as a kid, but as as far as like having a real idea about the era and to be able to talk about it i can't really do it at length really so no i don't have a lot to say about it it's difficult because it's something that now
0: tv is gone it's not something that you would just sort of dip into when you come home late at night or whatever and there'll be something on you go oh I'll, i'll watch this old uh, vampire flick or this old monster movie because it's not yeah. not the sort of era that we live in any longer well at least i know i i don't i haven't had a tv channel that has adverts or anything like that for oh, maybe 10 years now it's ridiculous yeah. like i can't remember the, <laughs> the, the when i go over to see parents and things like that i'm like wow you still live like you've got sky this is sky, sky <laughs> i exist still it's amazing. So,
4: yeah, all right, okay. My yeah. mum has no idea what Netflix is, so she's still got the old Skybox and she swears by it. So, right, yeah, well, she's yeah. very antiquated.
0: Well, we're going to talk about a couple of movies from this era. We're going to talk about Hunchback of Notre Dame and we're going to talk about White Zombie. The first one with this Hunchback of Notre Dame film, I need to ask you for a synopsis because like, <laughs> okay. I, this is the, the, the actual story of this film is something that I really don't dig. There's loads I do dig about it. I really like certain bits, but the synopsis, the story, I just don't like it. So, run run it by the audience.
4: Okay, so it basically the story sort of centres around this sort of sort of misunderstood hunchback, and uh, he's quite a kind creature, really. He's, he's got his own way of being quite noble, and um, but he's a he's a complete social outcast, and he uh, he lives in a bell tower in the centre of Paris, at the top of the Notre Dame. There, right? yeah and so he's sort of I mean it's the the film's called it's titular isn't it it's the hunchback of Notre Dame and sort of there's a sort of love sort of quadrangle if you want to call it there's a yeah. there's a gypsy girl at the, at the center of it all and there's about at least four characters that I can think of at the top of my head they're all sort of vying for her love and she's quite an interesting character but Quasimodo the hunchback he he falls for her after she sort of pities his pities him and takes pity on his soul and um then ensues quite a, a quite winding and crazy sort of story really of, of tragedy and just yeah it means murder there's all kinds of stuff going on but the central character is quasimodo he's also the most memorable performance out of everyone in the whole film um i think that's as best as i can do as far as uh, a synopsis goes that's great I mean it's interesting it's an interesting story because there's a lot there's lots of different people at different echelons of society you know there's a lot of uh, sort of economic disparity that's there you get to see there's a lot of interesting dichotomies going on between the new and the old you know the sort of the, the church sort of represents the old order sort of orthodoxy this sort of overarching top down social control and then you've got things like um you've got like the printing press has a little feature in it at the beginning which sort of these little items and these sort of devices are sort of there to represent the the, the encroaching new era that, that's not sort of coming along. And the Catholic Church obviously wants to control the message, you know, of the, the grand narratives of the, the Parisian society and and wider. So it's there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there that's sort of lurking under the surface, which you sort of could sort of dig at and sort of enjoy and take something from.
0: I always wonder how an audience at that time would approach those sort of themes that are run as the undercurrent of the movie. Cause Mm -mm. as you say, you're quite right. The, The underneath narrative is there. And over the decades, it's very easy to pull all that out. But at the time cinema, like regular going to the cinema, it's not, it's still reasonably new thing just like uh you know in the 90s a synthesizer might have been only like you know, 15 years old or something like that it's weird to think of these things now but yeah it was a relatively new thing so i i do wonder how how much the audience would pull out and if they did like then yeah there is a ton to discover there but if they didn't that over that overarching love story i i that's what I can't cling on to, and the main reason—the reason why I didn't like it—was the way Posimodo he just falls in love with Esmeralda so quick, just because he's given a bit of water.
4: I can see why you'd you'd see you'd see it that way, but I think that that is the best scene in the whole movie, and without that scene, the rest of it kind of just is kind of frivolous and doesn't really mean yeah. anything. So it's that central scene is for me. It's one of the best scenes I've ever seen. I would say, and I, I wouldn't say that about the rest. Honestly, I think the acting in that scene is so powerful. Um, Charles Lawton goes through this quite an interesting sort of journey just in that sort of thirty to forty seconds, just in his mind, um, and it says so much about his character. Um, you sort of see him look at her, and he sort of pulls away from her offer of water, and of course around the the scene you've got all the sort of peasants in the public square throwing rotten fruit um he's he's screaming out for water and nobody helps him but Esmeralda who is also a social outcast but she's a gypsy she's not supposed to be in the center of Paris they there's they're sort of kindred spirits in that moment and I, I found that quite interesting so as she's as she approaches and she offers the flask Quasimodo sort of looks at her and with his one eye that does work because the other one's obviously prosthesis. And he's obviously always scanning to see if anyone's friend or foe, and he's sort of seeing, and but he recognizes her, pulls away, realizes that she's the woman that got him into trouble in the first place. But she, but she's a benevolent sort of angel. She, she keeps going and she offers it to him and he, he sort of sees the benevolence in her eyes. And you see that in his face, and for the first time in his life there's someone that cares about him who's also beautiful and then you see it's all written on his face i found that just compelling and then he does open his mouth and he t- he accepts the water i mean there's for me there's a lot of a lot going on there um and it's very it's so well emoted. just i mean he, he he's it's such fantastic acting isn't it from charles lawton
0: he's <laughs> really well acted and for again for films of this period i've watched a ton of them no one is phoning in that that performance especially around that scene i just think it's a weird thing to to hang the whole film on um Mm. because because as i say i i think it would take a lot more than that for him unless he's been utterly crushed uh with his you know with being rejected all his life and the, the bells the bells going on fracturing his mind like you can mm. you can see like how actually he's at the the end and maybe this one bit of kindness is enough to to like shake shake his whole life up and, and of course that's the way the film takes it but I don't know I just I'm you are, I'm a cynic right I'm I, and you <laughs>
4: I'm a romantic yeah completely oh,
0: indeed Jim is that so good. I, I'm so glad it affected you in that way as well, because as I say, with me, I found it really difficult to get over that hump being such an important moment in the in the film. So you mentioned Charles Lawton. Yeah, he does give this great performance, and I love all those prosthetics. I I can see that it is sort of like cushioning in his back, but like the the face is so well put together, so mm-hmm. well distorted that that's okay. Like, I'm okay with that hunchback. Like I can see through that because he's doing something magical through those, uh, through that face that they've given him. Do you think that's as important as I do? This man, it looks hideous still today. It still looks great. I I think. I, yeah, I think it does. Job is he intellectually disabled at this point? Do you think that like there is also as well as the way he looks? Do you think that he's cognitive and like he understands everything that's going on around him or do you think at this point especially this water point do you think he is all fractured
4: i don't know well he's sort of he is the sort of moral center of the whole piece isn't he i think that he's he's aware of uh, how capricious and mean people can be and obviously he had he still carried like i say the performance still carries this sort of nobility he still has a sense of right and wrong about things and yeah, all all the all this sort of the the makeup and everything, the, the fact that he looks so grotesque is is makes it even more compelling. The whole performance, of course, yeah, the, the makeup is really thick, right? It's, I mean, doing doing a little bit of research about this, it took two and a half hours for him to to go through the makeup process up at four a.m. in the morning. Wow. He Charles Lawton went through hell for this movie, but like, there's no question about it. It was, I mean, it was like one of the hottest summers around that time. Um, in the San Fernando Valley, right in Hollywood, somewhere out there, right. And so he would even have to sleep at night with wet sheets, and even those would dry out relatively quickly. So he had these really sleepless nights. He'd get up at four a.m., have two and a half hours of makeup, heavy makeup, all this sort of sponge rubber, and he'd saunter onto set quite grumpy. And of course, it just went into the performance, you know, this sort of physical discomfort. He was in, he inhabited that. Just by necessity of having to go through, you know, to wear of yeah. wearing what he had to wear, so it really does come through physically. And of course, even though you can see basically just one eye and his mouth, um, he's able to get so much across just through his his sort of micro expressions. It's like I said before, it is a masterclass. Um, it's one of those performances which I think influenced a generation at the time to go into acting. And, and even when you look at his face and even the way his nose is sort of pug and sort of turned up, um, just pop references like Tubbs from the, the League of Gentlemen yeah. just completely come out of that. And you go, "Oh, there's, I haven't even checked that, but I know it to be true. Knowing that those guys that do League of Gentlemen are sort of aficionados of the horror genre, you know, they've got to have picked up on that visual and, and put it in there. And also, weirdly, Sloth from The Goonies came to mind as well. Similarly, so sympathetic nice. character. Um, who's deformed and has one eye slightly lower than the other one. So it's quite an influential performance, isn't it? To say the least.
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned the success of that film. So at the time it was a huge budget for RKO. Uh, I've written down here, it cost them 1.82 million. And in today's money, that is 121.6 million. So that's a huge amount of money. Uh, and they doubled it with the the return. So So many people must have seen this. It must have affected all those people at that time because you've got monsters before it. You've got the Phantom of the Opera, great makeup there. And, of course, you've got uh, all the Universal monsters as well. But this one, there is a real humanity. And as you say, so rightly, just from the glance of an eye (laughs) and perhaps exactly like you say, maybe that's that two and a half hours sitting in makeup early in the morning. Just that glance can say a million words that like otherwise it's just sitting down spewing out the plot and you don't want that. You can do it with just a twitch. You know, that's amazing. All right. The reason I came to this film firstly, because I know the story roughly, and as I say, I'm not particularly into the story itself, was just, I'm well into like looking at this sort of money being pumped into a film at the time. What are the sets going to be like? Uh, you know, w- what is this production... Uh, around the characters going to be like and I was proper impressed with it and I didn't expect to be I've
4: been to Notre Dame I don't know if you have um have you, have you been there I've I've been to Paris but I only had one day there and I sort of went around on a sort of one of those electric scooters just trying to get as much as I could oh, wow. I, I didn't see Notre Dame I saw sacre Coeur, and I basically got drunk with some cool people at a hostel but <laughs> that was all I did and then I went off to somewhere else but uh, no I haven't seen Notre Dame I haven't well, but you have I, I assume yeah have you so seen yeah,
0: it I've I've been in there so I was excited to visit this Just my memory is really vivid of it but I guess it's 540 or whatever years before so it doesn't look anything like I remember it I was also on tour actually around uh, on that day when it burnt down a few years ago 2019 so we, we sort of drove as close as we could to like be part of history and just like let's watch this massive thing burn down it's going to be you know remembered for for eons to come so we wanted to be part of history but we couldn't get anywhere near it obviously and we're idiots on tour so just let these english guys come through Uh, but saying that i was still impressed like i when i look at quasimodo up by the bells it looks dangerous to me. It look it's really well done. It when he's just jumping on that bell, I am. Just, what are you doing? This is like a long time ago. Safety, elf and safety. Yeah. What what are your <laughs> thoughts? <laughs> you know, what I mean, what are your thoughts about like this whole stage setup? The outside, the inside. It must have cost a fortune.
4: I mean, it's incredible. um I mean, only Ridley Scott in, in sort of modern terms, could you imagine someone being sort of auteur that's got such a, an eye for detail and, and just being able to create immersive environments where you don't even question it, you know, it's just something that's there and it's in a real breathing world. But it, I mean, it is incredible. And as you say, the budget was astronomical for the time. And you can see that they haven't spared any expense on just creating the setting before they even got started with anything else. It is sprawling. It's it's. It's it's massive, and I mean they recreated the facade of the Notre Dame apparently with reference to a fifteenth century uh, wood carving. So I mean, you know, you got to imagine a lot of audiences probably had never even seen what it looked like. I mean, they could have just come up with anything. Sure. But instead, they just went up for they went for the for detail. You know, they went for the real thing. And again, on screen, I mean, there's a scene where Quasimodo sort of lurches through the public square. Um, people onlookers kind of aghast after he'd just been again after the pillory scene which we mentioned earlier on and it's quite a wide shot and you can see almost like you can see a good portion of of the facade there and again it's incredible the streets the paving stones the unevenness of of the work there yes. I mean it doesn't doesn't look like it's cut you know cut, cut out of wood and just kind of uh, sort of a, like a facade would suggest just a, a a surface deep recreation of something it doesn't look like it's going to blow over in the wind it looks heavy mm. it looks real um so that's that's quite impressive i mean i can't think of another movie around that time that would you know sort of just pull that amount of money into something that could just sort of you could just like okay, we'll do a tighter shot here make it a lot easier to, you know save a bit of money there they didn't care they just went for it and like you said there's shots particularly at the top of um notre dame when Quasimodo sort of hanging around the the sort of guts and this, you know, even that's great. And he's sort of pushing the bells and it all feels precarious and it has gravity to it. So yeah, it's really amazing. It
0: was an actual delight and it was my favorite part of uh, watching the film was just that that money was so well spent. I love that part of it. Uh, and when you compare it to, for instance, just White Zombie, which we'll talk about in a few moments, the difference, the contrast of uh, <laughs> the amount of money spent on these films—it's it, insane. <laughs> it is insane.
4: I mean, the only thing to mention really is that I mean it diverges from the source material. Obviously, a lot of people were quite upset. Abs- you know, as I've found out through a little bit of research, is there's quite a—you know—the the original book um, has quite an, a. a Sort of rabid fan base i mean there's websites that are just dedicated to it um, and it does it does diverge i mean it does the hollywood thing of changing a few details here and there for example the ending um i believe that at the end in the end of the book uh, both quasimodo and esmeralda the lady he falls in love with they both die but obviously hollywood being hollywood and audiences not right. probably having an appetite for sort of too much tragedy um, they both survive. She's emancipated. She's given a pardon from the king, King Louis. And Quasimodo's just sort of left to his own devices, sort of a little bit down in the dumps, back to where he was at the beginning of the story, right? But um, I mean, there's other details as well, like the archdeacon, who is the the bad guy in the book, uh, is not an archdeacon in, in the film version because of a thing called Hayes Code, which was a, a sort of Hollywood code that sort of it sort of outlawed or sort of put the stopper on certain depiction depictions of holy people, clergymen in films you know it's there to sort of protect the sort of um, uh, the sort of culture of the church uh, in early Hollywood. so that was quite interesting. So the archdeacon the archdeacon who would normally be the bad guy in the book in this is a chief justice and I mean wow. it, this church the church still comes in for a little bit of a kick in. Uh, but the the main bad guy isn't sort of a a higher-up sort of clergyman as he was in the book so there's a few things that have changed worth noting you know
0: i thought the haze code was um mainly to do with like sexual referencing and like going to the toilet and things like that
4: (laughs) yeah that too that too there's a whole litany of things of course there was like these looming senses that were always trying to Uh, sort of like get their hooks into a movie you know they had their own lobby there they want to justify their own job so they'll try and find things so always trying to work around these things you know a quick one was just to change it you know make him chief of justice
0: the only other thing that I know from the book was that Quasimodo had like a big wart over his eye which sort of stopped that eye from forming properly or something like that uh, it's been a long time ago since uh, since I read read it. I think it was, in fact, probably school. But I always uh, remember that like it was covered up by a big wart or something like that, rather than like having like that droopy sloth type face. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's the only other thing I can remember from it. So I'm well glad that you read up on that.
4: Yeah, I didn't or know that
0: religion would really be affected by the Hayes Code uh, when you mm. think about what what era and what time it was. America is nuts. <laughs> this is nuts. <laughs> okay, right. Okay, well, let's then go into White Zombie, which would be, funnily enough, in the order of the the films of my ranking, is the following one on. So I actually preferred this a little bit. From Haiti, land of the voodoo, comes the most infamous cult of all, Bela Lugosi as Murder Legendre. I see. Master of the Undead Damned The Sinister Power Behind the White Zombie I think I prefer it because there is so much wrong with it and it's not a satisfying watch at the end either, I'm not satisfied by it, but I've come back to it time and time again. I have no idea why. There's just little bits in it that that I'm really intrigued by. So um, I want to start with the very opening of this film. And we're introduced to actual black people, which I was like, when I first saw it, I was like, whoa, I haven't seen this sort of stuff in in their the 1920s and 1930s unless it was like a a white person that's been blacked up so this was like this was great i was like fantastic we're actually there that opening scene i think it's it's got all those hammer-esque feel to it to it as well before hammer's a thing like i'm really intrigued by it and i really like it Uh, and i think it sets it up lovely but maybe you're coming from a different angle jim like so so what do you think about that
4: opening as you say, there's there's black people around, which for the time must have been kind of weird. But I don't know we sort of look back and we have this, I suppose we're not from that time. And we sort of imagine old Hollywood to be this really overwhelmingly white thing. And I don't think that's necessarily true. Oh, yeah. I think I think, you know, especially during the era of big band jazz, you had Louis is it Louis Armstrong, not Louis Armstrong was it the big jazz guy yeah yeah is it yeah. Louis Armstrong? yeah Louis Armstrong I mean we had black actors that were in films I mean scatman crothers people like that people that were musicians what I'm saying here is that black people were performers that Hollywood would utilize for their films now were they sort of major players and sort of leading role no there was none of that going on at least until sort of the 60s possibly um maybe the 50s you know with um I've forgotten the name of the actor I'm thinking of, but I digress. The point being is that I don't, it, there's a difference between something being racial and something being racist. I don't know where the line is with this. Um, if you sort of look at the historical context of this film, it's set in Haiti and there's obviously this, There's a lot of, uh, it was a sugar plantation colony for the Spanish at one point. And Haiti's even got problems now, but at the time then, then there was a lot of slavery. Um, there's also a lot of free slaves as well so you you don't know who these people are but as we're not really describing what happens there's a couple they're on a coach they're coming they're going towards a sort of manor house and they they get stopped in the road by a group of black people burying someone in the actual road itself and it's all kind of a bit curious really and they seem to be doing some sort of voodoo ritual and um they sort of ask the coach driver who's also black and he explains to them that they had to bury the dead in the road so they wouldn't be dug up, which gives you it's sort of it's a bit foreboding. It puts a bit of a question in your mind. OK, why? Why is that? Who would dig these people up? So, I mean, yeah, the racial element is there. But is it overtly racist? I don't know. It's again, I'm not, probably not best posed to answer that question.
0: At, at that point, I would also say, well, let's turn around and go back where we came from. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm off.
4: <laughs> See you later. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. So we've got Bela Lugosi, who's playing this kind of, what would you call a sort of witch doctor, a kind of a voodoo shaman, if you'd like yeah. to call it that. And he has this sort of, um, a sort of small cadre of like zombies around him, which he sort of, he he gets them to do his his dirty work, his bidding. And he's, he's sort of taken control of their minds but actually as it turns out all of them are sort of local rivals all of them are white okay so i did do the bit of research yeah. into this that one of them is sort of grand executioner who is going to execute him again you don't get the full exposition on on the story on that but you just you just know that he's uh found a way to sort of take control of their minds all these local rivals of his so this is why i said earlier sort of is there a racist element to this digging into the past of the haitian sort of folklore and the sort of voodoo that went on there as it turns out the reason why this movie is called white zombie is because it most people just assumed that zombies were a black thing um and as it came from as it turns out from haitian folklore zombies were slaves black slaves who had survived life only to continue being slaves. So the anxiety around the zombies was that you can't escape slavery even in death. So, as opposed to zombies being these things that sort of ravenous, brain eating monsters, they're these other things that are sort of condemned to a life of sort of drudgery and, and sort of physical labor. So, there's a real distinction in the, the sort of the type, the sort of taxonomy of zombie yeah, we're talking about yeah. here. Then you realize, oh, okay, so there's actually, from what i can remember there's no black zombies in this it is actually just a reserve of white white characters in this movie which kind of absolves it of kind of some of that more sort of prickly racial stuff that we might find uncomfortable you know
0: you mentioned where white zombie comes from and as far as i was aware again of the research of mine is pretty old and just from what I can remember but there was also the the connotations that white zombie was a sexual thing as well that has something to do with like you can make a, a a woman a zombie and then she's like yours to do sexual bidding. am I right in that?
4: um in my research I didn't find anything quite like that but I mean just from just from watching the movie there's a sort of implication to that isn't there? there's women are sort of treated in a certain way, the, the central female character here, she's sort of treated as more of an object, so less, than, less than a subject in the movie. And it's it's kind of that sort of feminist critique of movies coming back to haunt sort of old movies, subject-object dichotomy, which is, you know, feminist critique is quite is pretty much on the money there. You can't deny it. These old movies are, just scream sort of sexism, don't they? I mean, it's embarrassing, really.
0: One of the issues that I've got, uh, again, j- just something that bugs me. It's not too harsh. I wish I could. Uh, I would see. It's just me not caring uh, about women. I didn't write a name down, but the, the main, <laughs> the main woman in this, she, is pretty much a blank slate not very interesting character before she's turned and it becomes a blank slate and again just a not very interesting zombie that that i find that an issue like they, mm, there is potential I do there for for some real clout to make this person really interesting and to make you care about this woman before being turned and in fact all that sort of happens for me is that she's gone from being a bit blank not a zombie to being a bit blank, a zombie.
4: I mean, it, she goes from sort of being smiley and sort of um, accommodating to just blank, like you say. So again, it's she's not something that does things in the movie. She's not a subject that acts upon the objects. It, she's just an object that's sort of passed around between leading male characters. But I mean, I, I would even say that most of the male characters, most of the characters in this are quite 2D anyway. They have very basic, like one note motivations throughout the movie which is possibly why I didn't enjoy this movie so much as I did uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, because it is so, so it's very perfunctory, you know, like there's not much going on there, even in the performances, you know. Um, I mean, we'll we'll probably talk about Bella Lugosi later on, but I mean, he's sort of head and shoulders above the rest of the cast, I mean, it's sort of embarrassing some of these performances at times. They sort of they sort of flum their lines a little bit here and there as well. It's like, okay, cut, we've got it, move on to the next scene. You're like, okay, did you shoot this in a day? This is mental. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting.
0: That that is a very interesting point because you're right. I've I've seen him in quite a few films now because obviously delving into this time period. I'm quite the fan of him in this. I think it's his best role that I've seen. But at the same time. It's not much of a film for him to to like, you know, give his all in because like as you say, he can just I think this is a walk in the park for him. He can just out act mm-hmm. anyone. And are you a fan of his anyway
4: before this? No, not particularly. It's again one of those names that just like you you just receive it through just living living in a culture, sort of Anglo- you know, ang- living in the Anglosphere. You you know what the Beatles is, you know what da-da-da-da he's okay you hear horror you hear okay Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi but I cannot for the for the life of me like remember a time when I was introduced to him so actually watching this movie it was the first time I'd seen a Bella Lugosi performance and of course it was it's quite a good performance. For me it's this one just because
0: like it is sort of like a walk in the park for him like he's just I don't know. So good in it. And yet I always think to myself, All right, you pop that person into today's sort of film network and let, let's let see how well you do there. And I guess that's really unfair, isn't it? Because like, it's a whole different ball game now, but I don't know. I just don't rate these thirties and twenties actors. Uh, Boris Karloff is the only one that I actually like, I look forward to watching a film that Boris is in. Uh, but again, his name's Boris, and that winds me up. It's the little things. Um, Lon Chaney, I think he's got a, a good film. There's this one called The Unknown, I, I would recommend to you, Jim, uh, which is all about jealousy. And it's, it's really frightening. And like, I could really see myself in this this character of like, how easy it is to fall into jealousy. And I think he does a really good performance in that. Mm. But again, Bela Lugosi is just another name, like you say, that you're aware of. I don't know, it's, it's hard to back it up when the films surrounding that name
4: are, are often not that great. I mean, you've got these sort of, these big names and it just seems like the, the, the sort of level of acting just has a huge drop off. You know, the, the, anyone in their orbit is just terrible. And they I mean, maybe that makes them shine even more, but, In the case of Bela Lugosi, his sort of piercing stare, his sort of charismatic face, and sort of Hungarian accent, it already makes him into something that's sort of otherly, and it just lends itself to sort of like a the creepiness of of his characters. I mean, I think this film, it's uh, it almost seems like the typecast him fitting his own typecast to a T. It's just the sort of role I'd imagine a Bela Lugosi to to be uh, for me to see. So I mean, it's great. I mean, it's a good introduction to his acting and his on-screen charisma. I think the ending
0: of the film is a bit of a letdown as well. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm I just completely unsatisfied. Um, it would have been so much more interesting if, like, that didn't break a spell because it, it's not a supernatural thing, is it? It's not how it's set up, or, or not really. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I just I just found it really unsatisfactory. I wasn't happy with it. What's your thoughts on the ending, Jim?
4: I mean, the ending's just silly, isn't it? And it all sort of happens in a sort of split second. This movie's only about an hour and some change long. So they sort of go, right, let's wrap it up now. So we've got this little sequence that's like on a castle, on a hill, And we've got um, we've got our Bella Lugosi character still controlling the minds of 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 his sort of like local rivals, and there's just all like lumbering along, lumbering along zombies, and this other character which we haven't talked about knocks him over the head, and this sort of um, breaks the radar of these zombie (laughs) characters, and they sort of tumble off the cliff like in a sort of like just mindlessly one after the other, like lemmings basically, and that's just hilarious. It's just hilarious. It's like it's like a carry-on movie. I mean, it, it really is sort of just, it's just absurd. <laughs> it's just absurd. Um, but yeah, as you say, then, once once he's been knocked on the head and he's sort of knocked out for a second, the female character sort of regains some of her humanity. Some of the light behind her eyes comes back. And this flash of humanity then fades back to her being a zombie again as he wakes up. So I don't know how these te- these things technically work, <laughs> But I don't think they really thought about it too much, I'm guessing.
0: I, I think you're right. I don't think they cared. That's the thing. I, I the, the love of the hunchback of Notre Dame and the production and the casting and the sets and the blah 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 compared to this one. I just think this one is thrown together. Um, we we can we can make a movie, we can we can get those bums on seats, let's do white zombie, let's do this. Um, there's mm. a huge difference there um, I'm not saying that the people involved weren't passionate about it, of course there would be people somewhere amongst this lot that were passionate <laughs> but I don't know, there, there is difference and and yet if you want an, a film that has still resonated with people today, you're looking at White Zombie White Zombie mm. is the one that you know, uh, horror nuts cling to from Rob Zombie to as I say other people that I've just spoken to uh, on this chat today. It's been really weird how this one has affected people. So um, before I ask you um, about like any of your favorite zombie stuff going forward, I just want one final thing about White Zombie. Why do you think hmm. it's resonated so so much with people uh, over the past
4: decades? I, well, I think in the pantheon of like the zombie movies going all the way back, I mean, it, first off, it, it's probably one of the first talkies To and it might even be, if not the first, then sort of around the time the first zombie movies were made. Um, the fact that it has zombie in the title, I think that makes it the first zombie film. Previous to that, it was, yeah, I think that argument's been made. Um, sort of cinema historians might argue the toss on that one, but I think that's why it sort of set the standard. Um, it, it got it going, you know, got the whole ball rolling on that one. So, yeah, I mean also i think you know bella lagosi one of his most iconic kind of images and the way he's dressed and his piercing eyes poster's really memorable it's a great poster mm-hmm. um it's a really good poster i mean it's super short it's easy i think also people that like to sit around with their friends and sort of laugh at a movie would stick this on for an hour i mean it's it's, it's i mean it's not much it's a very low maintenance sort of watch yeah. i mean it's it's painfully slow if i was to you know, speaks to the audience here and give a recommendation. I might even watch this on 1.5 speed on YouTube because the, and trust me, I did for the second watch at points because the dialogue then sort of starts to flow. They walk very fast and that's kind of silly. It's a bit like Benny Hill. But other than that, the dialogue is at perfect speed unless you want to be, you know, a purist about it, of course. Uh, And also I
0: love, Uh, When you watch things slightly fast on YouTube, these black and white movies, um, when when they do something funny like walk off cliffs uh, and thing, it just (laughs) makes it even funnier, which is is good. Okay, so final question, um, and I'm really interested in this one for you, Jim. Um, So zombie films since then, although zombies are now a completely different thing, do you actually like them? And if so... Like, What would you say to our listeners? Oh, this is really a, a great one. You may already know it, but if you don't, you need to go here.
4: Dawn of the Dead, I re-watched that recently, having not watched it for at least sort of 15 years, I think. Um, and that, I mean, I sort of watched the remake of it with uh, Ving Rhames, I think was in yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that's it's it's really surprisingly good still yeah with the pregnant woman in it it's just again that's sort of become a sort of zombie apocalypse trope now there's going to be a a sort of a pregnant woman and you know that's going to be a bit of a mess isn't it she's going to get bitten you know it's awful um but watching the original i think it was like an extended version of it and it was really really good i really enjoyed it again the music is just impeccable um but i mean it's, it's very much of its own genre it's slightly tacky You know, you can sort of see the joins, you know, it's a little bit dodgy, but you can see the heart and soul that's been put into it and the amount of effort with probably the limited resources that they had to make a movie like that. I mean, it's sort of pioneering, isn't it? It's one of the best, if not the best in a lot of people's eyes, Dawn of the Dead.
0: It's my very favourite as well. I totally agree with you. Like even though there has been far superior looking zombies since and like uh, better scripts, better, what? Well, better everything. There's just something about when you put that film on, I don't know if it's nostalgia. I don't think it is, but I, I never want to turn it off. I will just watch, watch it until the end. Love it. There's something magical mm-hmm. about it. Like you say, uh, it's very difficult to put your finger on it because like I say, everything has been done since better, but also worse, <laughs> at the same time
4: worse for sure i mean when i think of zombies being sort of an avid video gamer i sort of go off the deep end there i mean talk about the resident evil games there's endless zombie games that have stolen so much from classic zombie movies um but yeah as as someone who's who who likes movies in general who dips into horror occasionally zombie films aren't like the first thing that i am attracted to so yeah i can't talk at length about zombie movies really thank you so much you're welcome.
0: Oi, oi. That is now the end of part one of the Also rans. Hope you enjoyed it. There wasn't a lot to love there. There wasn't a lot to love. But as you can tell, myself and Jim, we got quite a lot of love out of those last two. And going forward, I would have the pens ready because there's going to be loads, loads that most horror fans are going to at least enjoy. In part, in part. Okay, let's move this thing on up. There are a lot of huge texts in horror that I'm really not fond of. To the point where sometimes I think, can I actually call myself a horror fan if I don't care about it? I don't know if it's because these concepts have actually been played out far too many times over the last hundred or so years and I'm just bored with them. Or that I think they're just not very appealing to me, not good stories. Or if there's just nothing within them to entice me. So I'm just going to run you through them. The first one is Frankenstein. Now I love the imagery and I love the creature design. But the story itself, let's just put it this way. If a new film comes out and the director says they've taken elements of Mary Shelley's work, then I'm automatically going to put it on the bottom of my list. Next one is Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde. Now I read the Robert Louis Stevenson book and I read that when I was really young and I have to admit my mum bought it for me on the same day that she got me Treasure Island and I always went back to that island. I never stayed in Dr Jekyll's lab. Maybe it's because the themes were more of an adult nature and I was 9 or 10 uh, but whatever the reason it has had a long lasting effect. And I've seen a stack of films over the past few years that utilise the book as like their backbone, but I've just never been blown away by any of them. Thankfully, over these past couple of decades, uh, the additions to the catalogue of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde films is waned. Thank goodness. Those themes have either played out or they're currently out of favour. Either way, happy. I'm good about that. Good job. But one that I've not yet read, nor have I ever enjoyed an adaptation of, is The Island of Doctor Moreau. It was originally penned by H.G. Wells, and I couldn't find a copy of the 1921 German silent film, couldn't find that for this episode, and I was, again, really happy about that. But I have seen the mildly amusing Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer one from the 90s, I've also seen this god-awful adaptation of it from 1977 that had Burt Lancaster in it. Uh, And I've also checked out a film which is loosely based on uh, the island of Dr Moreau, uh, and it's called The Twilight People. Uh, That was, I think, in memory serves, either the late 60s or the early 70s. I really bloody hated that one too. So, having another adaptation of this to watch for this episode, it didn't really fill me with excitement, but... Credit is given where credit is due. And I was thoroughly impressed with this. Director Earl C. Kenton's pacing was enough for me to be engaged with the characters without reams and reams of exposition taking place and making me want to fall asleep. It has a tight 71 minute running time and that was enough to fire me up and actually press play on the thing. And I'm really glad I did. Of course, I am talking about island of lost souls you're convinced that the thing on this table isn't human its cries are human do you know what it
2: is, what I began with? No. An animal. Well, we may as well discuss this frankly, now that you know the facts. I wanted to prove how completely she was a woman.
1: Get everything ready. For what?
0: This time I'll burn out all the animal in her. <laughs> I'll
2: make her completely human. No, no.
0: Here is that letterboxed synopsis. An obsessed scientist conducts profane experiments in evolution, eventually establishing himself as a self-styled demigod to a race of mutated, half-human abominations. Now, a little bit of behind the scenes. I needed a little bit of help with dealing with these films from this era that I didn't know anything about, so I bought a book on it and it was called After Dracula – the 1930s horror film, and that was by the author Alison Pierce. Actually, she's a doctor, so let's say Dr. Alison Pierce. She also lectures at Leeds University, and her job title is Associate Professor in Film and Media. Now, as I've been using this book as a reference for this month-long delve into 20s and 30s horror, I reached out to her, and would you believe it, of all the films that we could chat about together, she opted for this one island of lost souls so please welcome to the podcast and this of course is the one time that i can actually say that the guest actually wrote the book on it we have the inspirational dr allison pierce hello allison how you doing
3: um i'm fine thank you how are you this fine sunny evening
0: i've finished a really odd shift at work and like i've been so looking forward to this so it's been i think you're the perfect person to talk to about this era two months ago i'd watched the wizard of oz it's the only film i'd seen from the 20s or the 30s
3: right right yeah (laughs) i've done
0: 68 now so
3: wow
2: that's
0: a lot Um, that is a lot not many stood out to me uh, maybe yeah. the, mainly the 30s ones rather than the 20s this one we're about to talk uh, about definitely did things that I really fell in love with certain things that I never thought I would which is completely surprising which I'm sure we'll get into and I had your book as a little go-to a little <laughs> compendium oh
3: bless that's, I did that's a, so nice <laughs> a,
0: a, the very first thing I've got to ask you is why pick the 30s for your book? I mean, of all those decades, why why the 30s?
3: Well, it's really random. I don't have any, like, heartwarming story of watching, like, 1930s films with my family or anything. I'd, um, I decided to do a PhD, and it, this was, like... <sighs> what would it be this was 2003 when it was all still a bit more chill about what your PhD had to be about you can't you had to put a proposal in but no one really cared and then the first the first few months of me doing my PhD I was casting about and in my head I decided I was going to do something on time travel and Donnie Darko but it just wasn't going anywhere and then one day my PhD supervisor said you should watch The Mummy you'd really like The Mummy you know as in The Mummy from 1932. Right. And I watched it and I was like, this is awesome. So I just started watching loads and loads and loads of 1930s horror films. I really enjoyed them. Um, There were a lot of them, quite a lot of them are supernatural, which is very much the kind of thing I'm into. I also really like that a lot of the 1930s horror films were around 60 minutes, so (laughs) they're quite short.
1: Perfect. (laughs)
3: And so I ended up doing my PhD on the 1930s. And then when it came to writing my first book, so after Dracula, the 1930s book is my first book. And it makes sense to do something around your PhD so I didn't like rewrite my PhD because i had done it all about psychoanalysis and I was kind of done with psychoanalysis but I took all the stuff that I loved about the 1930s and wrote a cultural history instead all about like how it got made and what happens in the film and what people thought about it afterwards and that just ended up being like the first big kind of horror thing that I did and I still I find the 30s very comforting I very much enjoy watching them like not as much the 1931 films you know like Dracula and Frankenstein I mean Frankenstein's great Dracula's really boring which is why I didn't do a chapter on it <laughs> um, but like from 1932 onwards when everyone started to think oh they're, they're making money making these kinds of weird films let's all make some um but before like all the censorship got really bad there's some really weird weird films out there and I just I, I really enjoy watching them <laughs>
0: I, I totally agree but yeah before that like, they started enforcing the Hays Code yeah and um, you were getting away with a lot of stuff that you didn't see for decades <laughs> after and yeah yeah it, it's it was eye-opening um again talking of Island of Lost Souls yeah like, so many parts of this like even if you take out that sort of religious quote uh where he's saying that um he knows how it feels to be God or something like that I can't remember the exact phrase paraphrasing yeah. there but Even if you take that out, just attitudes towards women, about sex, about procreation. Rape was even sort of hinted at in there. Like I didn't expect it.
3: very much threatened and it's like interspecies rape and it's also like really racist rape in one example as well. And you're like, wow, this is really, this is really something. You don't expect to get this in a film from 1932.
0: Not at all. So, I mean... Your history with Island of Lost Souls. I know a little bit about it, yeah. but I don't know if I listen as well. So um yeah, what is your history with this film?
3: Um so I'd started researching the 1930s. And again, this is the early 2000s, and there really wasn't there really wasn't much online. Like you did actually have to buy Old books which just listed films that were made. So I still got them all in my. Where, where it literally like in the year 1933, these films were made, and you'd read the titles and look for one that you thought looked like it might be hover. So I've been kind of combing my way through, and what I found again and again was references to Island of Lost Souls, which you couldn't get anywhere in the UK. I was doing um, my PhD at Lancaster and living in Bradford, but there was like nowhere in the country where you could buy this. And I just kept hearing again and again, that is this absolutely shocking, like revolting film that was banned in the UK until 1967. And at the center of it, it has a panther woman monster. And I was like, well, female monster, and she's a big cat, and it was banned. So I was really, really desperate to see it. And I think the fact that I couldn't get it anywhere in this country also kind of appealed as well. So I ended up, there was a, I can't remember, I was trying to remember the name of it, but back in these olden days, there was um, a couple of companies in America that specialised in really obscure films. And I ended up ordering like, a really weird region one DVD version of it. No, it was on tape. It was a VHS. Wow. And um, I had that shipped over from like Chicago or somewhere. So it's like, I was really quite dedicated to being like, now you can see it easy. But it was really something trying to get hold of it then. And a lot of the times when you get these films, particularly if you've want, waited a long time, they can't live up to your expectations. Sure. Like um, White Zombie, which I also talk about in another chapter, I had high hopes for. And I'm actually, I'm like, it's such a frustrating film, not in a good way. But um, Island of Lost Souls is just fantastic. It's like, this film is absolutely revolting. It's brilliant. You know, so I was very excited that I got to see it and it turned out to be fantastic as well.
0: (laughs) My first contact with this film was the other remakes a bit later on. Um, yeah. Especially Val watching Val Kilmer in his one because I, mm. I loved Val Kilmer at the time, so I, anything that I could find of his was great, and it yeah. I, it blew my mind in a way that I didn't expect my mind to be blown because I found it incredibly annoying, frustrating. The ego <laughs> was crazy, and we're not we're not even talking about the star here. We're, we're talking about Val Kilmer, sort of second billing. Uh, I I just couldn't believe what I was watching and I still can't now. And I wasn't expecting to like this one because of what I've seen before it. And I would definitely say this is by far the best sort of interpretation I've seen of that work. Um, Would you agree?
3: Yeah, completely. Um, I think part of it is also down to Charles Lawton though, playing Dr Moreau, like Charles Lawton is an amazing actor. And his performance in this is just utterly, like, divine. Like, his his um, screen presence is, like, completely off the charts in this. It completely carries the whole film.
0: Gives me the creeps. Yeah. yeah. It gives me the creeps. Um, <laughs> okay, so uh, you mentioned the Panther Woman. Uh, yeah. And this is what I found out from your book. And I loved it. And I, I tried to <laughs> dig a bit deeper just to find out, oh, okay, there must have been adverts in the press and things like that.
4: Yeah.
0: Um, so Kathleen Burke, getting that role via winning a competition, like a search across yeah. America for a new star. Like when you yeah. must have found this out, surely like you were like, Oh, my, what this is fantastic. It doesn't get better than this. Like, how far did you go in your research? How did you find stuff out about that?
3: Well, it's one of them joys of doing proper archival research. So I had no idea about the fact that um, it was part of a kind of a competition to become the Panther Woman that anyone could enter. Um, But all that happens when you do, well, when I do this kind of research is I get hold of my archives like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian or whatever. And I'll just dig through for all the matches I get on my keywords. So I'll I'll do the keywords for Island of Our Souls, for Kathleen Burke, for Charles Lawton, and then I'll narrow it down to the time period, like 1931. So if it's a 32 film, it's probably gone into production before that. So I might search all instances in these archives from like 1930 to 1934 and then I just literally like dredge all of it into and just get every kind of reference that I can find to what's going on. And then once I've got a massive amount of data, I just start kind of working my way through it and trying to find themes or trying to find stories. And that's where I found out that the Panther Woman was a competition winner and just being like a regular girl. on the high street beforehand and it's a lovely story i think well it's lovely in terms of uh, there weren't many women with kind of strong female roles in the 30s anyway so to find someone who's literally like picked up from the street to do it is just fantastic
0: i can just imagine like when you've discovered that when you've pulled that out and it's not out there yet it must be just so exciting getting those tingles oh my word look what look what we've uncovered here so, yeah. yeah, as I say, and it, I, I found that as the centre of your chapter on Ireland. Yeah. Once you've got that, you can sort of roll with the rest of it. It's really, it's, uh, like, a, it's, it's like a movie in itself, that chapter. Yeah, really absolutely.
3: Good. And it's one of the reasons that it makes me feel good about having gone into academia, because like these days, like you can get so much online and there's so much information online and everyone has an opinion, but... Um, when you're an academic you actually have the time, well sometimes, you have the time and space to do this kind of deep level of archival research, this kind of broad suite where you're literally just let's see what comes up and you don't have time to do that if you're just like a freelance film writer or a journalist or just a fan and then to have access to the resources where you can find out about this stuff. So like you know, the educational institution pays for these databases that you can search. It just, it makes me feel that it's one of the ways that I can give value with my research, because I have this, I have the facilities to be able to do this. So it enables me to uncover stories that just generally aren't out there otherwise.
0: I'm so glad that you are. As I say, it's not often, (laughs) it's not often that you would pick up a book and you would just find, find stuff that's not Easily accessible elsewhere. You, yeah. know, you know, it's, yeah. it's really unusual, and I, I, that, that's what I really loved about it. So, yeah, thank oh, you very thank
4: much. You. <laughs> okay,
0: right. Well, uh, enough enough of this. Uh, let's talk about this actual structure of the film, and this is the reason why yeah. I clung to this one. And yeah. when you sort of had a couple of options, I was like, "Can we talk about this?" Because I found it this one really easy to relate to because of the structure of it. It's sort of in the same way as you might find a structure of a film today. Unlike yeah. a lot of the other films from the 30s and the 20s that I was watching that were very unusually yeah. structured. Especially yeah. the ending, where it's like, bank, end, by. sorry, Yeah. It happened.
3: And if you ever re-watch Hitchcock films, Hitchcock does the same. Like, the minute the film, plot's finished, it's just like, bye, laters. <laughs> and um, a lot of the 30s films, like, when you look back at them, they're totally doing that. They're like, right, story's over, bye. They haven't really got the memo about giving you a bit of breathing space afterwards, so... <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I can't imagine what it'd been like in a cinema at that time, and it's it's done, and then you just look at each other because if that happened now, me and my wife, we would look at each other and go, "What the fuck? <laughs> like, what's happened there?"
3: That just happened to me though with a quiet place too. I felt like the quiet place too ended really abruptly, and I was like, "What? <laughs> what? That's the end?" You know. So they still do, but it's much rarer. It's much rarer now. The structure's dead straightforward. Um, you've got. Edward Parker, who's the nominal protagonist, so, like, as in 90% of 1930s horror films, they have a protagonist who's, like, a white, middle-class or upper-middle-class guy who's, like, pretty ineffectual and pretty rubbish, and he's basically just, like, the cipher through the film, and he's always, like, the very least interesting person in the whole film, (laughs) but he just basically makes the plot work. Like there's nothing else about him really, and so Edward Parker's shipwrecked and is shipwrecked, and he ends up on the island of Dr. Moreau, who's played by Charles Lawton, and he is your archetypal mad scientist. He's got an assistant called Montgomery, with which there are some seriously like gay coded moments going on. It feels very um like Smithers and Mr. Burns in The Simpsons. Yes, yeah, yeah, a lot of that happening. And then Dr Moreau is very pleased that Edward Parker has landed on this island because he's been experimenting and doing vivisection and has created Lota, the panther woman. And he's decided to get Lota to seduce Parker to see if she can bear children. And that's basically what the film's about. That's like pretty much most of the film.
0: (laughs) And what a great synopsis though. I mean, and the way that's told though, they let you breathe. That It's a slow burn in places uh, which yeah. which I enjoy and then the pace like when when it needs to be it so. the ante is up. yeah so I, yeah. as I say I was it was really refreshing uh even with those universal like the big hitters sometimes mm-hmm. it's just like oh you've gone straight to there from there to there and why are you yeah. doing that just t- take a chill for a moment uh, and yeah. this film does I especially love the scene where. Um, he is almost stroking the panther woman and and, you know they have that kiss and it's like oh we shouldn't yeah I I, I've got a fiance but yeah that moment is just a I don't think you would get that in other films of this time where you can just take a breather and there's still an important integral role playing out but it's just giving you a little bit of air to breathe around it I, I love that in this film
3: yeah just giving the scenes a bit of space to run out and let the actors perform rather than just charging on with the next plot line
0: yeah thank goodness as well because uh, <laughs> honestly when you watch so many in a row i don't know how you approached yeah. your your book <laughs> writing but yeah it it got very much like homework towards my my last couple yeah. of weeks when i had ten to go i was just oh yeah. another ten uh, but i had to i had to like know what people are talking about when they when they might mention uh, um yeah writer frankenstein or something so yeah. you've, you've mentioned already we've got a female monster uh so yeah. then there is not many more to to reach from in this era.
3: So there's the Bride and Bride of Frankenstein which is what people usually think about with the 30s. There's also um, Countess Zaleska from Dracula's Daughter which I think is 1936 so we'll get into the back end of the first right. horror cycle and then there's Madeleine Parker in White Zombie and she's like the most like rubbish female character ever like she's so passive. When I wrote this book I was trying to write about what happened to Madeline and to make the ending of the film more meaningful to me. And I ended up just like imagining an alternative ending to the film where both the woman who plays Madeline could act and where uh, Madeline had something about her as a character and it had some kind of deeper meaning. So it's very, very slim pickings. Um, There are some good female characters in 1930s horror, but the female monsters are, are low. So like um, Faye Ray in Mystery of the Wax Museum, she's one of my favourite um, female characters from the 30s. Or even MZ to Johan in um, The Mummy, she's excellent as well. So, But female monsters are very, very thin on the ground. They tend to be more um, passive objects that are passed around between the monster and the good guy. That's how it usually works. <laughs>
0: I would love Faye Ray to have been cast as a monster somewhere. Imagine <laughs> that! That that would blow the doors open at that point. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, this got banned, uh, in, uh, especially in the UK. I was I was having a little read uh, on Wiki, which is my extensive research. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite the same, but yeah, I I, I saw that it was banned in the UK for a long time. Um, oh yeah, it was given uh, an X certificate which at first i thought well and th- and then when i saw that oh that meant you yeah, could be 16 and you could view it that was that was not what i thought an x certificate was at the time because i'm confusing it with the 70s and things like that but yeah. like do you think it deserved that considering what else was going around at the time because it's really harsh yeah. to ban a film like this which is now yeah. a P- pg
3: Yeah, it's it's all about like what's going on at the time. So, like in America to start with, in 1930, they brought in the Production Code, which was supposed to be like, "Hey, we should only be making films that like moral and decent." And because the Production Code was advisory, everyone just ignored it. So everybody did what they want. So, for example, in um, 1932, the Production Code people told the makers of Island of Lost Souls that the concept of crossing animals with humans was very risky as a film and that the film should absolutely be abandoned because you'll never be allowed to do this on screen so they ignored that completely and just got on with it and did what they wanted but then by 1934 the production code administration was bought in and that's the difference it was like Hey, you know about that production code you were all ignoring for the last four years? We've had enough of you ignoring it now, and we're gonna enforce it. And then, once you start to actually enforce like proper, moral, decent filmmaking, the horror films all basically just start to die on their ass. And it was the back end of it, but that was in America. So in 1934, so after Island of Lost Souls, which is why you can get all this crazy shit in there. Does <laughs> yes. Um, but then, um, in the UK, the UK was also thinking about censorship and certificates as well. So in 1932, they brought in the H certificate, where H stands for horrific, and they, <laughs> and that meant the film was passed but to be viewed, but it was passed as horrific. So what the horror films were really looking for was to get an H certificate. That was ideal. But Island of Lost Souls was so dreadful. They wouldn't even, as in like, not a bad film, as in like completely traumatizing, that um, they wouldn't even give it a certificate. And so it was entirely banned in the UK until into the 50s and 60s. It didn't get its first screening in the UK until 1967. But I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't just the UK. It was banned in Latvia. It was banned in the Netherlands, in India, in South Africa, in Germany, in Tasmania, Holland. Um, most intriguingly and terrifyingly, in Australia, people of Aboriginal origin were forbidden to watch the film. So there's so many kind of racist yeah. undertones there, which is like complete, just like head spinning these days. But basically it got an international ban across the board pretty much once it was released. Um, even in the States, even before the production code was enforced, it got rejected all over the place. And Paramount, who made Island of Ross Souls, went around threatening legal action against the censorship divisions to make sure it could come out. So there was a real battle going on about who got to see this film and where and when.
0: That is amazing. I get The Exorcist. Like, I I can understand <laughs> uh, a little bit of that because I, I originally found that in a skip when I was young and mm. um, took it home. Uh, I found E.T. and The Exorcist in a skip and I was too scared. I was actually too frightened to even put it in my player. Uh, yeah. Not et <laughs> that I, I yeah, yeah, that. yeah. That but, was, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, that that's so bizarre. Like, and the devils is another one which, like, yeah. I can sort. I get that. I I I understand. Yeah. Although I don't, I don't think censorship is a good thing in any way, shape, or form. But I I understand that. But with this one, I think some of the talking points are actually great talking points and educational. Mm-hmm. And look, I'm, I mean, I'm looking from a a perspective of someone that watches films in today's climate yeah but even back then i i just think what great talking points to have across the table you know yeah. after going to see this film uh, with the family that's got that sort of uh, knowledge of what's going on in that time i just think what a wonderful opportunity was missed there
3: well there's a i always think this so like in the 30s particularly towards the back end of the 30s when like the threat of war was starting to loom again. This was one of the reasons, like the threat of World War II was clearly coming. There was um, a lot of the film censorship bodies and like a lot of the film industry as a whole was of the opinion that horror needed to stop because there were so many real life horrors starting to emerge. And the last thing people needed to do was go to the cinema and see more of it. But I think like retrospectively, while I understand that, I don't think that's necessarily the case. And I think often in times of like social and cultural crisis, people turn to horror and Mm. people want horror because it's a way of working through the kind of ugly feelings that they're having. And like during the pandemic, all the kind of contagion horror films went through the roof on streaming like they could not stop watching contagion-based horror films, like the streaming service providers were absolutely a standard, but people want to see horror when times are bad, because a lot of the time they offer a solution and they offer maybe not a happy ending, but they offer a clear ending and like a definitive conclusion and like horror can be a real salve in troubled times. And I just think that's something so early on, like the genre wasn't even established as the horror genre until like the mid thirties anyway. So I just think it was so early on. They had no idea about what some of the powers of horror might be.
0: I think I want to sign up to your classes. Uh... (laughs) 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 Um, So for anyone like me, that isn't really Uh, well, maybe I am now, but doesn't really Mm. know where to begin with 30s horror, where would you head them?
3: Well, I was thinking, so what you said right at the beginning was when you were saying you'd watched all these 30s films about the ones that stood out for you. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking about the ones that stand out for me. And it's not necessarily the Universal Studios ones. So when people talk about horror in the 30s, they think about Dracula, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein. And they're all fine, but I'm not as bothered about kind of the gothic adaptations. That's not my thing. I'm more interested in like the slightly weird ones that have come out or ones that are often from other competing studios like Paramount who have seen that there's popularity around the genre. So they're gonna do their version of it. So um, obviously, Island of Lost Souls is my favorite 1930s horror film, absolutely. But other than that, um, Mystery of the Wax Museum, which is kind of a crossover crime horror, that is excellent. And then continuing on the kind of wax theme, um, there's Mad Love, um, from 1935 by yep. Peter Lovett, which is probably my second favourite one. Which is, you know, like a crazy surgeon and like hands and playing the piano and craziness. Um, so Mad Love is really weird. So I'm super <laughs> into Mad Love. It's Alack. that Orlack
0: thing, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it's the hands of Orlach. It's essentially a remake of um, the German film from the 20s, Orlach's Hander. Um, and it's it's super good. I'm really, really into Mad Love. Um, other than that, I really like um, Werewolf of London. Um, but I have to say here, um, Werewolf of London isn't necessarily an absolutely awesome film in the way that Island of Lost Souls is awesome. But I really, really, really like Werewolves. And I'm quite happy watching anything with werewolves in. And this is like the gayest werewolf film of all time. <laughs> it's like the most homoerotic werewolf story about botanists that you have ever seen. So even, I don't think it's actually executed particularly well, but if you're going to give me gay werewolf botanists, then sure. I'm I'm going to watch that. So I would say that, and probably um, The Black Cat, which I think is 1934, Um, because that's super super, like sadomasochistic and it's got cats in again so I'm (laughs) off
0: (laughs) okay please remind me of that werewolf film what's the title I haven't seen that yet
3: it's called called werewolf of London
0: okay that's gonna I'm gonna wrap my whole podcast up by watching that one Um, (laughs) thank you so much for this I've really appreciated it So if you wanted to watch Island of Lost Souls, where could you find it? Well, I can simply recommend that you purchase the Eureka Blu-ray. It has tons of extras, including a booklet that was put together by the legendary horror know-it-all Kim Newman. In fact, the only thing I can think is really missing here is a woman's perspective. That would be nice to shine a light here on an angle that is simply not represented in this sausage festival of bonus content. It's just a nag but it's enough to be noticeable. As for podcasts, I'm just going to recommend one here, uh, as that's the only one that I listen to, so I'm not going to recommend one that I haven't, and it was rather brilliant anyway. It was the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. That is the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Uh, It's a recent one. Uh, It was released on the 11th of July, 2021. And there you have it. We have begun the top 10. That is the Island of Lost Souls. Here we are again. I've got my window open, so please excuse the cows. Uh, Someone is mowing a lawn. It sounds like there's an owl directly outside my window. Uh, But yeah, I live in a village. What can I say? It's busy. Right now, we're going to talk about my number nine movie. Okay, so here we go. In the early 30s, expressionist director Fritz Lang joined forces with Thea von Harbo and Egon Jacobsen. Together, they wrote this early work on the behavioural nuances and the psychotic mind of a serial killer. And that serial killer is played by Peter Law and he plays the insidious Hans Beckett. Now, while this movie does reveal its hand really early on, it's no less engaging for doing so. Law lights up the screen in his title role, and as much as he is drenched in evil and this cunning persona, somehow he manages to just about garner some empathy from the audience. It must have been such a trip to watch this one back in 1931. I can't imagine what watching any of these must have been like at the time on the big screen. I guess everything's new. Maybe it's like that first time that I saw Terminator 2 with the liquid metal. Anyway, regardless of that, this is M. Another...
2: The Berlin. An Außenseiter. Verdirbt uns <laughs> das Geschäft und den Medien. Die Maßnahmen der Polizei, die täglichen planmäßigen Razzien zur Ergreifung des Kindermörders, hindern unsere Tätigkeit in einem kaum mehr ertragbaren Maße. Wir müssen ihn fangen.
0: This is the letterboxed synopsis. In this classic German thriller, Hans Beckett, a serial killer who preys on children, becomes the focus of a massive Berlin police manhunt. Beckett's heinous crimes are so repellent and so disruptive to city life that he is even targeted by others in the seedy underground network. With both cops and criminals in pursuit, the murderer soon realises that people are on his trail, sending him into a tense, panicked attempt to escape justice. Now, I'll be honest about this one. This movie is not scary. It's on here in a year in horror because we are dealing with a serial killer, The Dozen Kids. I think that's horror enough. The story is understandable, it's easy enough to follow, and it's actually quite interesting when you compare this to serial killer movies of today. And you can actually see that we haven't come that far since 1931. But what really pulls me in here is this fantastic framing and blocking of shots. Cinematographer Fritz Arno Wagner... I'm doing pretty good with these names today, I reckon. I reckon I've got about 20% right. Uh, He works on both Nosferatu and on this. At around 24 minutes in this film, there is a shot where the police come down a stairwell and they have to face this angry mob at the bottom of the street. So when they get to the bottom of the stairs, there is this archway that perfectly frames the scene. And even though when I paused it, I counted 16 people on the actual screen, you are only ever focused on Inspector Lohman. It's a stunning scene, it's beautifully set up and it is a bit of a weird one that I really like this, probably more than I do in the film, just looking at the thing. There are several instances throughout this film that are just like this. Really gorgeous to look at. But with great artistry comes great responsibility and unfortunately where this film fails a little bit is there is a lot of standing around and sitting at desks. Probably too many for a film with a two-hour running time. Yeah, you heard me. Two hours. I mean, you'll be glad to know that they're shot lovely, but that isn't really what I was hoping for from a serial killer movie. So I guess it's like swings and roundabouts. There are great bits in this. There are bits that are proper tedious for my 21st century eyes. And where to find M? M. Well, you can watch it exactly where I watched it. There is this great HD res of this on YouTube. And if you want to spend some cash on the actual physical product, then Eureka, they put it out on their Masters of Cinema label and it looks even better. Also with that one, you're going to get a couple of commentaries and all the usual extras that you would get from a fantastic company like that. And I've got to admit, I like this film enough to actually buy it. So whenever it comes up on a sale, I'm definitely going to be doing that. As for podcasts... In July 2020, the Wrinkled Rabbit podcast, that's the Wrinkled Rabbit podcast, they covered M. And I would also recommend to you the April 2019 edition of The Projection Booth. They did their episode on M at that point. I think I preferred that Wrinkled Rabbit one, although it was a couple of months ago that I listened to them both. I might be getting them confused. (laughs) Sorry, projection booth. Uh, Oh, well, they both do a decent job anyway. Uh, And it's a Fritz Lang classic. M is my number nine pick. Let's move on. For the desperate horror fan, sometimes YouTube can be a temporary relief of the burden that you can't either find that elusive movie and it's not available for streaming either. DVD, Blu-ray, forget about it. In this case, or in my case, I just couldn't afford the price tag for the current version that's available that came out on Flickr Alley. So, it was when I sent Mark Canali the task of choosing any movie at all that he wanted to talk about anything at all from the 20s or the 30s and he came back with this one the rarest of delights a Japanese silent horror film from 1926 and even though Mark and myself do spoil the shit out of this one regarding several key plot beats and character arcs if anything if you haven't seen this yet I reckon we're doing you a service because we are at least presenting this baffling movie with some context for the Unexpecting Explorer. This one is the mind-melting, camera-swooshing, drum-beating and impatient freestyle dancing, A Page of Madness. that was the trailer did you get a lot out of that maybe not maybe this will help this is the letterboxed synopsis a man takes a job at an asylum with the hopes of freeing his imprisoned wife now that doesn't really help does it so the version that we watched was a TCM rip and as I said it is on YouTube it lasts for 1 hour 18 minutes and 13 seconds it is that version So if you want to watch exactly what we watched, that's the one you need to press play on. And this one is presented completely in silence. So what I did, I enhanced my viewing with Spotify. An artist called Sumatron Black, S-U-M-A-T-R-O-N, Sumatron. They do like a pretend score for the movie. And you know what, it really worked. It's sparse, it's melancholic. Well, it really worked for me. It really suited all the images that I was seeing on the screen. And the first thing that you notice is that there is lots of sharp, fast cuts that mix in with this storm that's going on. There is animated lightning, musical instruments are everywhere. It is as jarring as it is enticing. And it may just be the weakest point of the film as modern movie going eyes would see it. Because it goes on way longer than you expect or want it to. And it doesn't particularly prepare the film's themes for me very well. So with that being said, why should you watch it and what will you get from it? Well, there is some hench interpretive dance in this. And it is just stunning to see every single time it happens. It looks and it is presented as otherworldly. And another thing to look out for is all these odd Dutch angles that you get when the camera focuses on those asylum inmates, whenever they're on the screen, a Dutch angle will start to appear. And although that is not the earliest example of it, so far from this batch of films that I've seen, it's my favourite. It's really well executed. As I mentioned, those filming techniques, they're expertly achieved. There's camera swooshes, lots of double exposures, lots of mirror work. It's all really inventive. Plus, when you're almost at the finale, when the inmates are wearing their happy masks, it's like the equivalent of John Wayne Gacy's clown paintings, uh, but in a silent movie form. It's really creepy. It's creepy as hell. But as I take a lot of stuff from Letterboxd with this show, I do want to mention this guy called Harrison. He left a review about this on Letterboxd and he watched it on the same day as me. It's quite a lengthy review, but I'm going to read part of it. He mentioned that there was a point in this film's narrative structure that seemed all jumbled and he got lost for a while. And I was thinking to myself, well, no shit. That's the understatement of the year. But his final paragraph in this, it summed up my experience really neatly. This is what he said. Overall, A Page of Madness is a fascinating artefact from a lost time, swimming in its own serility of existence and expression. My only criticism of the film is a personal one. My lack of understanding interfered with my enjoyment of the film. I totally understand where Harrison is coming from on this. But after I read up on it, i mean, Google was clearly my friend here. Everything sort of came together. It made a lot of sense. I've since watched it again. And I got a ton more from it than I did the first time. I found it really interesting to explore avant-garde cinema from Japan in the 20s. Madness. Now where we're going from here, this is going to be in-depth and interesting as hell. Because Mark Canali, as I mentioned before, is the guest for this one. A Page of Madness. As usual, he has researched his stuff and his research opened this whole movie up to another level for me. And when I watched it again, with my own research and his critique rattling around in my head, as I say, it just makes everything so much better about this film. So please welcome once again to A Year in Horror, this is Mr Mark Canale. Mark Canali, how you doing?
1: Paul? I'm fine, Paul Waller. How are you? Very good. This was
0: such an odd pick. So I've gone a different route with this one. I don't know what I'm doing with the 20s and the 30s. So just pick anything and we'll go at it. <laughs> Boy, did I regret that. You picked out of what I would consider it can't be thin air, but I don't know what the hell air you were. Breathing in a page of madness.
1: Well, okay, yeah. I'm. I mean, to be fair, I'm not. I'm no expert on that sort of period either. I mean, it's it's not something that I've spent apart from the usual sort of suspects that we've all kind of seen, uh, Nosferatu and that sort of thing. And Uh it's not really a period I knew a huge amount. So it was more a case of, yeah, how many horror films were made that, or at least are available to us now. That we can watch, and you you look up a sort of list of them, and and one of them springs out, because how many of them are Japanese? You know, That's from right. that kind of. Era? I don't I don't think I. I mean, I I have this is certainly the earliest Japanese film I've ever seen. I mean, easily. I I, I think it was more just a, a case of just gonna be interested to see it. What What was this all about? So, had you heard of it before you chose it? No, no. Wow. I no, I, I literally. I mean, I literally sort of had a look through the kind of list and yeah i was i was obviously going to be looking at the normal the usual guys and that one just sprung out at me and i just it's and i thought well i'm going to watch it first because okay it could just be absolute pants couldn't it it could just be like the worst thing you've ever seen but it turned out to be i think absolutely amazing really I, I was absolutely stunned by it overall so i thought well okay i think this one might be quite interesting for paul to have a go at and see what he thought about it well there's
0: a couple of things this we found are as a tcm rip on youtube mm. so the, the one you wanted me to watch i think was something like 78 minutes long 68 minutes long something like that 78 yeah yeah and there's no music no. and what stunned me was also the the plates with writing they weren't there so yeah. i was like right i'm gonna get to grips with this i know what i'm doing so about 20 minutes in quarter of an hour in something like that i like right paused it and i'm gonna read a synopsis because i can't go in blind here right and okay once i would read that synopsis i was pretty much on board and the weird thing is just all the cards on the table I left the film six out of in it.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: It was a week ago almost now, and I can't stop thinking about it. So yeah. there is something to this underneath everything that that you actually watch. You bring out a lot. Um, what do you know about this film's history?
1: Right. Okay. Well, the history. Okay. Let me take you back to uh, Wait. to nineteen. <laughs> Let me take you back to nineteen twenties Japan. So <laughs> now this was uh, this was a country that was sort of modernising very quickly. It was modernising as fast as any country in the West. Obviously, it had its own cinema sort of system, its own studio system that was making films. Cinema at the time was big business in Japan as much as it was in America or Western Europe. In in the mid twenties, there were thirteen hundred cinemas in Japan. It was big business. Wow. It, okay. It, it, this was not this was not like some sort of. We sometimes maybe think that. These sort of countries maybe sort of came to it later or didn't have, you know, a system ready for this sort of thing. But actually, as much as any country, they, they loved film. They also got lots of Hollywood films over there as well. Um, so they had their own studio system, and that that was making sort of traditional sort of swashbuckling sort of period dramas, which were called um, uh you, You'd know sort of Kurosawa used to make those sort of films, you know, the sort of Seven Samurai-type things uh-huh. of... All based in that sort of same period of time and all that sort of stuff. So they they made those then, and they tended to make a lot of kabuki sort of theatre, um, sort of adaptations. So they would sort of adapt stage plays, that people, traditional sort of plays, and put them onto sort of cinema screens. So you can kind of imagine maybe why the people at the time really loved sort of Hollywood films, you know, and why they would sort of right. see Lillian Gish up on screen or Douglas Fairbanks or something, you know, and think, wow, how exotic this would be, and it was. You know, Hollywood films were big business in Japan. really were. Uh, and then we had the, the Great Kanto Earthquake and fire in 1923. And this earthquake, this disaster, basically flattened the city of Tokyo. It essentially destroyed Tokyo and Yokohama, in the port. And it, it, just, it just raised it to the ground, essentially. It, it killed 150,000 people. It left 2 million people homeless. Bloody hell. Which at the time, that was a big proportion of the population. The city was destroyed and had to be rebuilt again. Uh, and the, the sort of government at the time, and they, they felt that this was really a divine sort of intervention. They, they saw this almost be, being a sort of divine retribution to the way that culture was going in Japan that it was becoming sort of morally very lax and so on, you know, and all this idea of Westernism coming in and sort of changing everything. They felt that this disaster had sort of, this, that was why this happened. And so when they rebuilt Tokyo, they did it in a very sort of staid way. They wanted to make it very sort of functional. And they wanted to base a lot of it on technology they wanted to sort of base a lot of it on living and working and that was it and sort of traveling and that you know keeping things like that and at the time a lot of artists obviously didn't like this particularly a lot of young artists they wanted to rebel against this they didn't like the way this was all going you know this idea that their culture was getting sort of, sort of thrown out with the idea of sort of right, modernism yeah. and changing and and this film comes from that um, it was a group, and this is where you may have to you may have to get me edited on this. If it takes no. me about three goes to pronounce this, the Shinkankakua, which was a group called the uh, uh, New Perceptions, and they were a literary group, and they were formed in a response to this. They they hated this idea of realism, of modernism, of all this sort of stuff. They wanted Brilliant. to go back to a sort of internal expressionism you know sort of expressing an internal thing dreams and stuff like that rather than reality they wanted to go into the sort of dreamlike state and this sort of group they loved the sort of european modernist cinema mm-hmm. right? they loved the sort of the french avant-garde the sort of very early surreal cinema in france they loved the german expressionism so they loved sort of fw sort of lang fritz lang people like that they would have seen the cabinet of dr caligari for example
0: right yeah of the, course The
1: film about madness and about sort of the this sort of internal struggle of of madness uh, and the director of this film um Tien-Suki kinugasa well let me see Tiansuki kinugasa knew i'd get it wrong he was a member of this group uh, he'd actually started off as an actor when he was young he was an onagata. He, he basically played female roles in in plays and early films because they didn't employ women to actually perform in them. What? So any female roles were played by men, yeah, in kabuki theatre and stuff. like There still are, actually, a lot in kabuki. You tend to get males playing female roles. I had no idea. Yeah, but he actually lost his job because in the 1920s, early 20s, because they started employing women to actually play these roles in cinema. <laughs> so he lost his job. So he became a director. And actually did very well. In about three years, he made 35 films.
3: So he actually Jesus. did all right for
1: himself. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. This studio system in Japan, they were knocking them out. It was yeah. you know, it was big business. But he wasn't happy. He was part of this group. And then, so they decided to split off and make some films independently. The, the, the studio system would never make sort of more avant-garde films, sort of rebelling against this sort of very sort of capitalist, conservative type thing that was sort of coming in. And yeah, this was this was the second film he made for this group, and it was certainly the biggest one. It was made very professionally. He had he basically put all of his money into it, he used very professional equipment, crew. The actors were all very sort of they were sort of well known and professional actors. You can tell, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you know, and they really went for it. It was released. I don't actually know how it did when it was released. I can't find any evidence of whether it was successful or not, or what happened. What I do know is that in 1950, the copies of the film were destroyed in a fire. The studio um, had a big fire and all the copies of the film, all the copies of all of the films in the studio were destroyed. So they were all lost. Um, and the director, actually, he went on to just become a fairly big studio director doing some of those old-fashioned movies that he didn't like in the first place. He did a lot of the sort of period dramas. He won the Palme d'Or at Cannes in 1954 for a sort of period drama. But uh, he actually found a copy of this film. There were two copies, uh, a silver nitrate negative and a positive, in his garden shed. Of course. In his garden shed in 1971. He just found it, and he, he didn't even know it was there. And, yeah, he brought it out. He got a new print made, uh, a new soundtrack. Well, a soundtrack was put together for it that he sort of okayed. And it was shown around the world. It was toured around the world. And that's the version that we see on YouTube. That's the version that we have on there now, was this 1971 print. That's incredible. It sounds
0: like a lie. It doesn't sound that could be true, does it? The
1: 1971 thing, yeah, when he just found it. You would think, didn't you clear your shed out in, like, 50 years? <laughs> you, know, you just imagine this. What what state was that shed in? They had a film down the back that he didn't know was there for decades.
0: Unbelievable. <laughs> what a story.
1: So are these stage
0: actors more than film actors at the time did that does that cross-pollinate well
1: the actors themselves they they you look them up and and most if not all most of them certainly were they 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 kind of had an equal sort of footing in stage and screen most of them were quite experienced cinematic actors um but they would have had a lot of experience in theater as well and which if you think about it's probably a Quite a good thing for a silent movie kind of actor to have this sort of kabuki theater sort of background because they have that very expressive way of performing I don't know if you've seen kabuki but it tends to have that kind of exaggerated facial features yeah. and lots of exaggerated voices and movements and so on which silent cinema kind of you know it's almost as if they, they were sort of they had the experience to work in silent cinema straight away they could walk into it but most of them did have a lot of experience in the cinema uh, the main actor, Masuo Inui, the, the, who plays the main character, the janitor, he was very experienced and actually relatively well known. And um, he was quite an important part of the the filmmaking process because when he lent his support to the film by being in it, but also in the background as well, because he had a lot of experience of filmmaking and he had a lot of prestige he was well known in the studio system as well it gave the film some prestige as well It, it made the film it sort of brought the film up a little bit from not being this little tiny independent feature to being like maybe more of a challenger to the studio pictures of the time
0: so i don't think this would work unless the the acting was top shelf because being set where it's set and having the themes that are explored within it you can't muck about with it you can't half-heartedly just do your best stab at it and then move on to the next scene like you've got to portray the these moments especially when it goes slightly surreal you've got to keep it grounded somehow and thankfully the, these actors really pulled me in and yeah, that is what i can remember most
1: He's, he's, he's fantastic, isn't he? I mean, he has a really sympathetic performance. He doesn't seem to be exaggerating an awful lot. He really does seem to have a very grounded performance in it. And I think that really helps the whole film because it actually does draw you in. There's a lot of pathos in what he does, which I think is important for us, particularly for a modern audience, because it's very easy to look at sort of older films and see these slightly over-the-top performances and so on and see it more theatrically, Mm-hmm. Whereas that seems like a much, much more real performance. I think the the only other, I mean, the, the the dancer in it as well. the The young girl who's a dancer, who's the, has the whole sort of scene, sort of dancing crazily, you know, constantly until her feet bleed, kind of thing. She she was the only one that didn't really have any acting experience. She was just a dancer. She was just a professionally trained dancer, ballerina, actually, and a choreographer. That's all she really had done. But it's quite interesting that her performance in a, in a way. It's, it's just because she's such a good dancer that that performance is just as impressive because she doesn't need to emote too much in any other way. She does it with her body in it. And I mm. think that's really amazing. That's really impressive with that whole sort of thing. She's got a very modern look as well. I also thought that when I was watching it and the, the scenes with her in it, you almost could think, you could transplant them to pretty much any modern era in a black and white way and and she kind of fits it it's just really amazingly filmed in that
0: way it's absolutely stunning like watching those scenes i've recently watched climax but you can also Uh, see in uh, the remake of suspiria and black swan like Mm -hmm. whether they're taking direct influence from it who knows but
1: Red
0: shoes as well, yeah. So, yeah, oh, of course. So influenced by it. And you're seeing this stuff that we've seen maybe, I don't know, 50 times since and done to very different degrees. But with this film, it feels very day one. It feels like, right, this is the first step. We're doing this very professionally. It's trippy as hell. And that's why I brought up <laughs> Climax. It really does have yes. that same feel. Yeah, I would... I w- dead impressed with it it's something that really bugs me and i can't find out what it means what's the storm mean to you at the opening of this whole film
1: there's two ways i suppose looking at it technically and and yeah thematically what does it mean i suppose thematically i just see it as a way of being drawn into the film uh in terms of he's trying to create i mean this is a film about sort of impressionism and expressionism it's a, it's not about setting the scene that we would normally do in terms of a a wide shot where are we okay or a zoom in you know or a tracking shot in from outside you know sure. wide mid close that kind of thing i think it's more about bringing it into the types of the types of people in the, the, their mindsets and what's going on in their heads and so i suppose that the storm is sort of taking you in to the the craziness, the madness within. It's the idea that this, all this madness is outside, That's it's everywhere in the world, and you go inside and there's madness in there, there's this craziness in there. I also think about the sound, it's trying to express sound visually. Got lots of rain beating against windows, you've got tree branches smacking against each other, and then you go in and you've got drums, you've got trombones. Mm-hmm. Inside the heads, of the, this the girl that's dancing and you see her dancing on a stage. And, you know, in a a dress and a a magnificent dress, and she's dancing beautifully and the camera pulls back and then some bars close in either side. And you realize that actually she's behind bars and suddenly the dress changes to a sort of ragged, sort of gown, sort of, yeah. And she's she's dancing with bloody feet and so on. I think it's taking you into them. I think that's why there's a storm like that. I think that's why the beginning of the film, I think technically, as much as anything, it's really all about the fact that these filmmakers were very excited to express the, the, the technical knowledge that they'd gained from watching these European films. Because they hadn't really been allowed to do a lot of that stuff in in the, the more sort of traditional studio filmmaking. So they probably wanted to whack a lot of this stuff in and really show what they could do. And really show what they could do expressing mental states with types of shots, skewed angles and double exposures and lens distortion and the slow motion sequences and things like that. And I sense there's a lot of that, particularly at the beginning of the film, that you really feel they're really trying to impress people. They're really trying to get people into it visually.
0: That's where I'm coming from. I think I can see technically why they're doing it. It is really prepping you for what's gonna come ahead in the film. But what I didn't really get was like, why is it there um, apart from that? Why is there something so full of turmoil? Like that that storm is a punishing storm. It's a, a, a tornado that, as you say, things are smashing against each other. I'm like, why is that there? And like, apart from like the obvious, there's a storm outside, there's a storm inside, you know? I can yes. see that. And maybe it's yeah, as yeah. simple as that. And they're just showing off, look, like, this is what we're going to be going for. Well, and,
1: yeah, I think there's a combination of it. I think that's what I'm saying. I think, I think they like the idea of using a lot of these techniques, but they are using it for that reason. I think they're using it to really try and express this. I think they're really trying to show in a visual way. They're trying to show the cacophony, the sound, the the, the action, the motion. There's also the idea that you you see our main character walk in through the, the gates, through the doors, into the corridors. Yes out of the storm so it's a way of introducing him to us as well as sort of there being this character within the storm but also outside of it and this sort of he he's your main character he's going to be the the focal point of it of the the sanity should we call it of the film or insanity in a way later on we find out but he's going to be your focus and he walks out of the storm himself at that point near the beginning into you know into the cells and looks through all the bars at the different people in there. So there's also that as well. I think there's a lot going on in it. I think that's that's one of the main things as well.
0: You mentioned the double exposures. I recently watched the Phantom Carriage, uh, <laughs> and I think that that I prefer the way double exposures and treble exposures are dealt with on that film. With this one, it just seems like one tiny part of the palette that they're going to use. Like they're they're throwing everything at this. <laughs> and if you're not prepared so I guess that is really what that storm is doing as well it's mentally and visually preparing you for what's going to come forward yeah from from the off without the dance scenes and and the camera swooshes and everything you're into another world and it is very alien it is Japanese you know it's something that the western world would not know and they're really like announcing themselves here it's like how look at what we can do you know this is us look at this so yeah as i say i'm i was very impressed with it
1: well th- this is the interesting thing i think sometimes we maybe look at early cinema and we kind of place a certain naivety onto it and we sometimes feel that you know sort of that there's this idea of wow how did they figure that out this kind mm-hmm. of thing or, oh well, isn't that amazing that they could get a camera to do that guilty but it's in, in a way these These techniques, although yes, people were discovering using them and so on and so forth. In a way, that sense of discovery is no different than it is now of just using different technology. It's just about the creative act. And I think, honestly, yes, there was the. I think more the way that this stuff was put together thematically, the way they were using these these techniques to try and not so much tell the story because they were expressionist filmmakers. They weren't looking at just narrative. They weren't really that hugely bothered about the narrative. They did. They did care about it. And I think this film does have quite a strong narrative for what it could have been. It could have gone very much And Shian and kind of surreal, if if they wanted to, but they do keep a you know a a kind of a a strong sort of narrative. I think that that keeps an emotional line running through the film. But I think more than anything, it was just the techniques. It was more just impressive that they were using so many, so well, to try and tell the story, and I think tell it successfully. I think that's the most impressive thing to me. Not so much an individual. Oh, they could do that. Wow, that's amazing. It was more they they did it so well. homogeneically they put it all together so well
0: when you finish this film for the listeners out there Mm. you are changed there's no way you can watch that and if you're into film and just think all right I'm going to move on to the next film you need to take a breather right there there is something like cataclysmic in all the stuff that's going on when it's all put together it's very impressive and I would love to have seen it at the time can you imagine being there at the time and just
1: say what the hell am I watching yeah um yes I agree I mean what I did afterwards was I sat down because I didn't do what you did I actually think that's great what you did because you stopped it and actually read the synopsis and then went back to it I didn't I just went for it I just watched it in complete silence for an hour and 18 minutes and and finished (laughs) it I literally sat there like, God, I think I understood around about 10% of it. I, I really did. It was, I, I you know, I, I got some of the ideas that were getting pulled put forward visually, but narratively, I was all over the place. I didn't get it at all mm. until I sat down and actually read about it and actually just wikied it and just just read, wow, that, right, there's the plot synopsis. Great. And, and read through it. And suddenly, when you realize that, when you actually read through it, it's, it does change the film. The second viewing of the film suddenly became very different because I was much more comfortable with the narrative of what was going on. And and I, and I think that's probably, I mean, the lack of intertitles, as you were saying earlier on, mm. is a big part of that, really big part of that.
0: It makes it hard work where I think it didn't need to be hard work. I'm such a Luddite. I need some help. Uh, with these films. And that's sometimes all I need to get me going and, and like really get myself into a film. Like, how did you cope not knowing anything and having well, that no title just, plates?
1: Yeah, I don't think you're a Luddite with that. I think what that is, is just the fact that we are, we have been ingrained with a kind of modern Western style style of filmmaking and 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 you 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 because you you watch so much of this it just becomes part of you you need these things to to kind of follow a story to, to to feel that a story is really talking to you you kind of need these things it's almost it's not so much that there's a problem with the story it's more that there's you need a connection with it and those connections are generally formed by a sort of a a feeling of, sort of comfort of, of sort of oh, right, yes that's why you know a lot of sort of um, cinematic sequences are copied over and over again why opening sequences tend to have you know like the shining or something like that there's always this sort of idea of flying in on a helicopter or a drone now cool. how many films start with this and that's because it's part of our western cinematic language when you watch a film from 1926 in japan you, you realize that that's not part of your language in, in, in as much as, you know, even, even reading the kanji at the beginning is, is not part of your language. You don't know what it says. The fact there's no intertitles really throws you completely because you need these things. You need, it's, it's not being a ladder, it's, it's just being who we are, where we are, when we are. And um, the reason there's no intertitles in it is because it was a Japanese film of the time and they didn't use intertitles like American silent that. films, right? And basically they used something called benshi, which was audio narration. And they would have a person or persons standing at the front with the screen and they would perform the dialogue or what have you, or descriptions that you would normally get in these intertitles, they would perform it as almost a theatrical almost performance, wow. certainly vocally. And they they were called katsubin um, Benshi was just the, the, the way of doing it, and um, they, they were called Katsubin themselves. And yeah, the music was also played live in these theatres. Some some of these cinemas would hold over a thousand people. These were big sort of theatres. And you would have these performers with music, and they would have to sync up their performance (laughs) with the music and the the action going on on screen. And some of these people became quite famous and well known and quite well paid. And um, actually, in 1927, I found this out as well. There were 7,000 of them employed with 1,200 cinemas, or whatever it was, was it 1,300 cinemas, and 7,000 bench. Katsubin, employed to do this. This is how they did it in, in Japan. They didn't use insults. So the film is actually not strange in that respect. There would have been an audio narration, as well as live music played over it, that would have spoken and would have expressed some of the you know descriptions of what was going on, a narrative and the dialogue that was being spoken. I could just picture,
0: instead of just sending the film out to cinemas, you've got this truck full of people <laughs>
1: <laughs> and one reel of film exactly <laughs> the band's turning up basically you know <laughs> and here's a singer kind of thing you know oh and there's a film going on in the background that you're just going to be sort of singing to or whatever <laughs> doing the dialogue over
0: the reason this is in here is it's a horror and i was waiting for the horror to come and i found it so there is a scene where the mum is behind bars and there is a gathering of patients from the asylum and they gather and they gather and they gather and it's terrifying and there is no sound. So all you're doing is you're looking at these facial expressions and it feels like they've just gone into an asylum and let everybody out and scream at this woman. It was proper scary and it was very impressive. I will admit I was watching it very late at night too on yes. Own. But wow, like what what a performance. What a what a stunning setup for that for that to work so well in today's climate of horror films. I was so impressed. And that's really what I'm taking from it. At the end, I'm just yeah. thinking, I was blown away by that.
1: Yeah, there's there's quite a few that, yeah, there's a, there's a that, that's the scene with the dancer as well, isn't it, where she's dancing mm-hmm. and they all watch her and they start yeah. her dancing starts setting them all off. That's right. Yeah, that is that is an astonishing scene because it builds up so well over quite a long sort of period doesn't it? it takes about five minutes of just constant cutting between faces and seeing the faces become more agitated and then physically everything's starting to get a little bit over the top yeah you mentioned um was it climax it has a sort of similar idea to it in, in places it's actually amazing you said that i hadn't even thought about that but it's what a good sort of example to put next to it yes yeah, so, i mean there's i think there's quite a few scenes i mean the scene i said about the the bars going back you know seeing the girl dancing and then the bars sort of appearing in the shot i mean i I was thinking about that and that's actually a shot that's used in silence of the lambs but it's actually used in reverse so in silence of the lambs jonathan demi um, he puts his sort of shot as a wide shot when um hannibal lecter and Clarice starling are having their sort of big climactic conversation about the silence of the lambs and it starts off wide and you can see he's in his cell kind of thing and she's standing outside and you can see they're both in the different sort of separated and what he does is he keeps closing in every shot every cut it gets a little bit closer a little bit closer and the bars in the cell start moving out of frame and all, and then eventually you realize that the sort of climax there are no bars anymore and you're in the cell with Hannibal Lecter, and she's in the cell with Hannibal They're Brilliant. both sort of connected, and, and it's that's the same shot in a way, because at the first bit, you re, she's on a stage, and you, she's dancing, and you're just watching a girl on the stage, and as this camera pulls back, the bars come in from the side of the screen, and you realise she's in a cell. It's it's very modern. There's, there's a modern shot, a beautiful modern series of shots, used in 1926, invertedly, but same kind of idea that's a horror that's a horror shot in a way if you think about it. it's the idea of thinking you're free but actually then realizing it you're behind bars is a really lovely sort of idea i think visually this film is sort of out on its own
0: compared to everything else that i've watched within this time frame for this episode of the podcast i'm going to ask you a question sort of going away from there but also wondering where this fits within it so Silent movies as a whole, can you recommend any? Is there any that have really pulled you in in the same way this has? How do you feel about them compared to this one?
1: That's the thing. This one I really enjoyed because I felt, it, it felt, as you say, very separate from the the general mass of silent films that I've seen. Not that I have a huge knowledge of that sort of period, but, you know, the ones that I've seen, you, you generally, once you've seen Birth of a Nation or Intolerance, something like that, they they feel a certain way. You start thinking, okay, that that's a silent film. That's I kind of understand it. This one didn't fit within that framework, be it because of again the different culture it's made in, the different, or be it that it was just made in an avant-garde way, you know, to express something avant-garde, to express something different and new. So it's hard to sort of say, oh yeah, there's films like that. I mean in, in silent cinema, all I can say, yeah, apart from the usual Nosferatu, Hexen is obviously a Great weird sort of outlier
3: Goodness.
1: that doesn't kind of fits, you know, a bit weird Scandinavian movie that again was actually a fairly big film. It was made by with a huge amount. Was one of the most expensive Scandinavian films of its time. And you sit and think, that's a blockbuster. They sat down <laughs> and said, I'm going to make Hexen. <laughs> You know, in America, they're making biblical epics and you make Hexen, you know, you make sort of witchcraft and torture. Okay, that's Scandinavians for you, right? That's that's great. It's brilliant. Yeah, that'll be a hit. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to me, the best silent films... Aren't horror, there aren't things like that. They're the comedies, they're the best silent films because comedy lends itself to silent films so well. The Chaplains, the Buster Keaton's, the Harold Lloyd's, the slapstick comedy, they're the greatest silent movies still because it still works. There's you know, it's still the best way of showing that kind of comedy is in a silent movie context. It works so amazingly well. So, but in terms of films like it, I, I don't really have. My best example of a film that I could compare to that film is Eraserhead. That was the best I could come up with.
0: <laughs> what a comparison,
1: though. You're well, right. I think, yeah. yeah. And and actually, the second time I listened to it, I played the soundtrack of Eraserhead with it, which is essentially just this weird industrial kind of, the sound of gas escaping from a pipe or something. I don't know what the soundtrack <laughs> to Eraserhead really is, but it actually worked quite well with it. Yeah, to me, I, I think it's pretty obvious that Lynch would have definitely seen this film in the 70s. I don't think there's any doubt about it. I think he saw this film because you look at Eraserhead, the feel of Eraserhead, you look at his early short films, particularly as a film called The Grandmother, which is a kind of mixture of animation and live action. That's a kind of silent film that has no no intertitle type thing. It's just this sort of play played out sort of weird, surreal fever dream thing, but very, this very high contrast, black and white sort of idea. I, that's the best I can sort of compare a sort of a film I'd put next to it and say, yeah, you could watch these two and kind of get the same sort of idea.
0: I think that you don't need the background of a Nosferatu, Caligari, any of that. I don't think you need that for this film. I think you can get a lot out of it from just going in blind. Um, fair enough you'll struggle exactly where I struggled, you know, and where you struggled, like, wh- what's the narrative? Like, just going in completely blind with no background is going to be difficult, but yeah. you're still going to get stuff out of it. I just think it's so well made. It's so exceptionally finished, uh, even though, by all, by all counts it's a scruffy negative that you can see on YouTube. I don't know how well it was cleaned up for the, the I think it was Criterion or someone that that put it out. I know that there are maybe better prints out there and fixed prints, but regardless, like what I saw was incredible. So I just want to thank you for that experience and what a choice, because I wouldn't have gone there when she said, do this one.
1: Thank you as well, because it was you actually saying about doing the silent movie stuff that got me looking at the list and actually seeing you know, what was on there. And I would never have seen it had I not have actually sat down and thought, okay, what sort of silent horror films are there out there that I might not know?
0: Mark, thank you so much. Yeah, pleasure, as always. So where can you find this one? As I've already said, you can either spend a massive chunk of Dosh on the physical product, or you can just watch this for cheaps on YouTube. As for podcasts, A Century in Cinema. They did their episode on A Page of Madness back in November 2020. And if you want something a little less academic and a little bit more fun, then go for episode six of a podcast called Swamp Flicks, all one word. They did their show back in June 2016. It's all still up there. So this podcast and those podcasts, I think that's all you really need going into this film. It's a really fascinating project, I really enjoyed it. I've already come back to it once, as I say, I'm not worried about coming back to it again. I think the 1920s and 30s is working out. I love it when a director does a one-off, something that is out of their comfort zone It'll often give a new spin onto a project that isn't usually part of the genre that they usually work with. Sometimes, of course, it can really fall flat on its face, but every now and again this approach can deliver a truly refreshing take on a mouldy old idea. And this is where Sidney Landfield comes in. He was best known for directing gentle comedies and gentle romance films, and yet in the middle of his career, he turned his hand to a classic horror tale. Now this was released in 1939, so audiences by this point were used to having their horror watered down a little bit thanks to the Hays Code, but this one, this one is so comfortable and easy to watch that I almost didn't include it in this list. The thing is, Landfield does a great job at executing all the usual horror tropes in quite a safe way. At no point did I feel like the hero is in any actual peril, but all the pointers for horror are here. What sells it to me though are those landscape shots, and it's the reason why I've put it in here. Whether it is shot actually on location or in a studio, the fog, the howling noises, that creeping around under the cover of darkness... That is what I want from my 30s Fright Night Cinema. So please welcome Sherlock Holmes into this double decade of a year in horror. This is The Hound of the Baskervilles. In the classic
2: tradition of mystery and suspense, Playhouse Video presents Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Hound of the Baskervilles. Mr Holmes, you're
0: the one man in all England who can help me. Well, won't you sit down? Thank you. I'm in mortal fear Sir Henry's life will be stuffed out. Why, what makes you think that? I have information which leads me to believe that for centuries past, every Baskerville who's inherited the estates has met with a violent and sudden death. It's Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes and Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson, together in their first mystery ever, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Here is that letterboxed synopsis. On hearing of his uncle's death, Sir Henry Baskerville returns from Canada to take charge of his ancestral hall on the desolate moors of Devonshire. And he finds that Sherlock Holmes is there to investigate the local belief that his uncle was killed by a monster hound that has roamed the moors since 1650 and is likely to strike again at Sir Henry. Okay, so that's the synopsis. Uh, and I want it known right now, I want it known that I love this film. Uh, that's why I've placed it into my top 10. But as soon as I finished watching it for that first time, I just wondered how many others out there actually share this feeling. So what I did was I asked my good buddy for his take. So for the first of two chats today, please welcome Sir Benjamin of Bowles. He's going to speak to us about this very interesting version of the classic Sherlock Holmes tale. Hello, Ben. Welcome back to the podcast.
2: Hello, Paul. How are you?
0: I'm topless, as you can see. <laughs> Completely Billy bollock. Uh, I've got to say, it's a good look. Thank you, mate. <laughs> yeah, it's really hot up here. Um, right, so this is just a little bit of extra, um, because there's a few questions I just want to run past you. So I know we're going to delve into my number two pick soon, okay? Uh, but before we do that, and I'm going to ask you a load of stuff about my number two pick. But this is my number seven pick, Hound of the Baskervilles. Now, you've already mentioned to me before that your favourite film ever is A Wonderful Life. That's 1946, okay? Uh, Unless you're talking about some weird remake I don't know about.
2: No, I'm talking about the original.
0: Okay. So that's a bizarre choice. But okay, we'll get there one day. We'll get there one day. This is an even earlier talkie. So this is an earlier example of now... We've got the capabilities to watch silent films. And on top of that, add a talking track. That's madness. Uh, and then I'm going to say to you, right, okay, do you mind watching Hound of the Baskervilles? Like, how did you see this? as like a really early example of what we're so used to today. I loved it.
2: <laughs> I absolutely loved it. Um, there's, there's always a barometer that I go with when I'm about 20 minutes into a film. And if I just find myself smiling uncontrollably just because of so many right things on the screen, um, I know it's going to be a, a cracker. And uh, and and this is one of them. And and it will probably go into to more detail, but I think we'll probably go into a bit more detail later on. But yeah, I just think it was um a stunning, a stunning piece of work, and also, of course, you have to take into consideration the, the time as well. Um, 19 19- Thirty-nine, which was which is completely bonkers.
0: All right, so that's amazing. I'm so glad you enjoyed it because when I watched it, I just thought it's going to be oh, this. I'm this is going to be well deep in the also runs. But I gave it a go, and then I, when I went to sort of put it in the list, it was going above this all-time classic, above this all-time classic, and it sort of started creeping up there. And now, as I say, it's at number seven, so it's really high. I really regard this as one of the better films of this era, but I, the reason why I just was against it from the off is because I'm not happy with Sherlock Holmes. Don't like him as a character, which is probably me being so into horror and not into sort of other
2: genres and detective stuff on telly. Are you down with Sherlock Holmes? I'm I'm down with Sherlock Holmes if it's Rathbone at the helm. Old I'll, I'll Basil, a bit of Billy Basil. Everybody needs a bit of Billy Basil. He's exceptional. He's great. It's great. It's just the whole he totally drew me in i made i made a note of his delivery as well i mean he's not he's not the only one it's it's so quintessentially middle class and upper class england it's just everything's perfect isn't it in terms of the delivery there's no it's so crisp every line is delivered like they're on stage which is brilliant and even the cinematography is very stage like i was making notes as as i was going and sort of looking at the perfect blocking of the dialogue sleep uh, the dialogue scenes just everyone is in their spot so perfectly not that it looks unnatural but it's just essentially every scene could be a still and it's so it's composition 101 but considering and maybe if it was a film that was made today with that composition it might be a bit stilted and a bit sort of too structured i suppose but I just think it works so well for this, and I just thought it's beautiful to look at. I love also the movement in the camera as well, which, considering the the time that this was produced, the really subtle sort of push ins and pull outs and panning, um, because it would be totally simple to or, or, or totally understandable actually when this was produced, just to have their, you know, a beautiful set lock off the tripods um, and allow the actors to do what they're doing. But there's so much thought going gone into the movement of the cameras as well. It's its a, it's a work of art, the whole thing. Um, and I know we were talking about Sherlock Holmes, so I'll circle back to that, circle back to Basil Rathbone. As a character, I would agree with you. It can be done very poorly, but I think he's exceptional, um, as is Watson. I think he's, he's actually the star of the show. I just think he's brilliant. Um, and uh, they've got an incredible chemistry on screen.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with pretty much all you said there. Um, I find it really unusual that they get all that sort of stuff right, the practical stuff all correct. And then the, the actors, for whatever reason, I mean, they've been talking in motion pictures for a few years now, but they're still projecting. I, I found it uh, in even in Wizard of Oz with Dorothy. You know, you're still projecting. There's, you're still being way too loud for what this scene needs. But at the same time... Oh, I'm sort of all right with it. I get it because you know, they've just come off the stage like less than less than 10 years ago. This was so new. I'm going to talk about a few Sherlock Holmes's uh, just to get your opinion. So coming up, I haven't seen it yet. Peter Cushing plays Sherlock Holmes uh, in a 1959 adaptation of The How to Baskervilles. I uh, want to see that. Do you think he's going to do
2: well in that? Peter Cushing? Well, I would have thought so. I would have thought so, but he's um, he's going to have to go a long way to out Basil Basil. I would say.
0: Okay, um, Christopher Lee. He played him three years later in uh, the Deadly Necklace. But it's a mystery one. It's it's not one of the horror ones. Uh, okay. So I don't know about that. Now, and then we come right up to date. So we got Robert Downey Jr. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. He played him. We massive hit in 2009. Like ridiculously big hit. I, I hated that. I watched about 10 minutes. Wasn't well, it was
2: Guy Ritchie, wasn't it? And I think it, he was just coming off. It was around, must have been way after Lockstock, actually. But Lockstock was his peak, and then it's all downhill since, wasn't it? So, um, and that that was all part of it. So, how dare you? I know. Sorry. <laughs> how dare
0: you. Uh, Roger Moore. Would you believe Roger Moore played him for a TV episode? Uh, I so that. I can only imagine that is going to be awesome. Of course. Roger Moore. Yeah, and uh, and I'll be a fool uh, for all our Star Trek fans out there if I didn't mention Data. Uh, do you know Data? You yeah, know Star I know Trek Data. Next Gen. Brilliant. I'm not oh, personally, but I know of him. You're you're in the the cool club now with with me, <laughs> <laughs> about several billion other people that like Star Trek. But yeah, like whenever they would go into the holodeck, Data would be uh, Sherlock Holmes, and I always hated them episodes so much. Uh, but you know i'm not I, I can't not mention him so yeah there we go a uh, quick history <laughs> I, <feel like laughs> I think I've nailed that uh, right okay so a uh, little bit i want to talk about and this is I think you've sort of already mentioned it but as well as those inside settings which look so great, the outside settings on the moors well, i've been on the moors and when I, mm-hmm. I close my eyes i don't have what it was actually like. I have what they've made it like on here. I just think it looks fantastic. You are going to go and eat dinner soon, Ben, but you're still eating
2: now. I'm eating a Satasuma to see myself through to about 7 pm. Unbelievable. It's like 10 to 7. Always always a professional. Always a professional. (laughs) Those outside settings.
0: I think I love that most about this whole film. I I loved, I wanted to be out there uh, and exploring and just the way they were filming this stuff as well. I'd seen similar things in The Wolfman uh, from around this era as well, where they're they're going outside. I love it when it's a stage production. So they've actually got sets to make it look outside. Uh, And I I just love that. I, I miss that so much in cinema now when you just go on location in the woods. It's so cheap. Let's do that. But I, I love this sort of falseness about it.
2: Yeah, it's very obvious it's a set, but it certainly doesn't take any enjoyment away. And It doesn't actually take you out of the story. And I think, going, just hopping back to what you were saying about them being a bit hammy and overacting and, and being a bit thespian and stage-like, if the story wasn't so good and the visuals wasn't so good, that, that didn't bring you into the world i think that would be a huge barrier but i think the set was obviously a set um the, the performances were overacted to a certain extent because it was all for time but it just didn't take you in, in not not one part of it got me sort of laughing in a blimey this is this is shocking or yeah. you know i can't believe they they did that it was it was of its time, but I still think it stands up because of the strength of the whole production as a whole, I suppose. Um, including, like you said, the sets, which are just incredible. And the amount of work that's gone into the production of this is is absolutely incredible. And also I love just going um on to another thing I love, and I don't know if you'll talk about it, but the length as well. It's one hour twenty is 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 in. This is what a story is about, and it's out. It's so so tight. There's not a wasted scene. There's no flim-flam. It's just so tight. The whole thing is really, really tight. Which is why I would
0: straight away recommend this for people that are on the fence about going back to 1930s cinema. I I really would. 1920s, I, I completely get it. A lot of it is hard work. But by the time you get to like the, the early 30s before the Haze Code is introduced, you can actually get some real horror. And then after it's produced, things are, are toned down a great deal, but there is still like this magic warm feeling that I get from these films, which I, of course, just wheeling back now to Wonderful Life, your favourite film, it sort of amplifies that this feeling that you get from the Baskervilles film uh, and just sort of amps it right up and like, we want you to feel good, have at it sort of thing. So this is a stupid final question, Ben, but would you recommend this to a modern day audience?
2: No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course, absolutely. Even though it's a comparatively short um, distance away from the twenties, it's for me at least, um, it's it's hundreds of years, Uh, it's so watchable and it's so similar to what we have today that it's yeah it's it's compulsive viewing um and i think that whether you're i think that very old films a lot of very old films you would need to be a real film buff to get anything from them you know you have to be really interested in the history of film this i don't think that's the case and i think that's that's how good it is a film from um 1946 still i I could show this to anyone and they'd still enjoy it, and that's uh, that's an incredible thing. Ben, I'll see you later for dinner. Beautiful.
0: <laughs> Many thank yous go out to Ben there for speaking with me today. It always surprises me when that guy says yes because with the amount of horrible shit that I've asked him to watch since doing this podcast, I'm surprised we're still friends at all. And where can you find The Hound of the Baskervilles? Well, it's definitely on YouTube and it's in HD quality and in the USA you can stream it for free on Tubi or Flix Fling. Of course, if you want that physical product, you can buy a copy. It's only on DVD that I can find. But in both the USA and the UK, it's less than ten dollars or ten quid. Podcast wise, Mystery Twins Detective Agency. They chat about it on their show from December 2020. And it's a wonderful podcast. They aired their Hounds of the Baskervilles episode in December 2018. And there you go, out of all my top 10 picks, that's the one I was most worried about bringing to the table. As I say, it is really light in the horror, but there's no way you could consider it not horror. So it's got to go in there, and it's really good. Tomorrow is part two. Today was part one. If you're listening to this in the future, that means that
4: part two is already there. Thanks.